You're listening to Coding Blocks, episode 64. Subscribe to us and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, and more using your favorite podcast app. Visit us at codingblocks.net where you can find show notes, examples, discussion, and more. Send your feedback, questions, and rants to comments at codingblocks.net and follow us on Twitter at codingblocks or head to www.codingblocks.net and find all our social links there at the top of the page. With that, I'm Alan Underwood. I'm back, Joe Zach. <laughs> and I'm Michael Outlaw. This episode is sponsored by FreshBooks. The all-new FreshBooks makes ridiculously easy accounting software that's transformed how freelancers and small business owners deal with their day-to-day paperwork. It's been redesigned from the ground up and custom-built for exactly the way you work. FreshBooks provides the simplest way to be more productive, organized, and most importantly, get paid quickly. Getting started on FreshBooks is extremely simple, even if you're not a numbers person, especially if you're not a numbers person. Now when you email a client an invoice, FreshBooks can show you whether they've seen it. This puts an end to the guessing game. The new notification center is like your personal assistant telling you what's changed in your business since you last logged in and what should be dealt with like overdue invoices. This lets you focus on what's needed to get done and help you get back to your work faster. FreshBooks is offering a 30-day unrestricted free trial to our listeners. To claim it, just go to freshbooks.com slash coding, that's C-O-D-I-N-G, and enter coding blocks in the how did you hear about us section. All right, here we are with the podcast news. First up, iTunes reviews. Big thanks to Angela Gallo, 44, Jay Belmont, 80, Polymaphic, Polymaphic, uh, Shirag926, Tony B0312, Mark2457, Juice de Palm, and Teddy Y. Someone want to take Stitcher? Yeah, Mike, you want to do this one? These yeah. are pretty easy today. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh, from Stitcher, Roy. AP Net and Nick Assembly. Very so nice. So thank you to all of you guys that took the time to uh, guys and gals that took yes. the time to leave us a review. Uh, we we super appreciate it. Very much. Yeah, for the full shows, uh, show notes, show notes, visit codingblocks.net slash episode sixty four. Yep, and we had some fun news this time, didn't we, Joe? Yeah, I had some visitors here in Orlando. So yeah. not only has Alan been around uh, visiting Disney with his family, but we also got to meet Andrew Diamond and uh, Casey. Yeah, had a great time. I uh, really enjoyed them coming out. It was fun. That that guy's got a, a very bright future ahead of him. So um, thanks for coming out, hanging out, having dinner with us, and definitely look forward to meeting more of you folks as time go on. And thanks for all the help with everything. We actually um, we have a, a lot of really great people in Slack, and uh, Andrew Diamond's one of them. And actually, I've got to say, I've got a little bit of Ohio envy because I know we've got a lot of people uh, in the Ohio region up there. Um, you know, Angry Zoot, uh, Sean, um, sorry, to, uh, Living Ryan, everyone I'm forgetting, but uh, really appreciate you guys uh, being awesome in Slack and just being awesome in general. So it's nice totally. to finally uh, meet one of the Ohio crew. Yeah, the, the Ohio crew actually have their own channel in Slack just for uh them hashtag jealous yeah right they all want to be around lebron <clears throat> that's my story and i'm sticking to it and because these guys don't do sports at all they may not even know who i'm talking about i was like wait what does that have anything to do with how oh, did we good get God. to sports ball <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, man. All right. So uh, in the last episode, we covered, obviously, we were talking about DDD, and we talked about the specification pattern, and I think I completely lost Michael on that one. And so I mentioned that I was going to do a video. I haven't quite gotten that part done yet, but I did create the code, and that is available on our GitHub page at github.com slash codingblocks. And I will be doing a video where I actually talk through the specification pattern, at least starting out for valid, not necessarily validation, but making sure certain requirements are met. And then maybe in the future, I'll even go into and talk about maybe doing the selection via the specification pattern. So uh, look for those coming soon. I will have them up on YouTube and we'll share the links out as soon as we have them. And the next thing I want to mention, even though it looks like we're running out of time and the site wasn't clear to us or me specifically, so this is my bad for asking too late, really. But if you guys wouldn't mind, we don't ask for much, but if you go to podcastawards.com, we'll have a link in the show notes here. But if you'll go up there and nominate us for either the education or the technology section, that would be amazing. Apparently, they have two rounds of this stuff. One is the nominations, and then the second is the voting for the, the ones that were nominated. So I didn't realize that, and that's my bad. We'll probably send out a newsletter with this as well. But if you guys would take the time to go up there and sign up and nominate us, that would be amazing. Yeah, we really want to go viral here, guys. So uh, you know, we're trying we're trying to be we're trying to be beavers, right? <laughs> so we, we really appreciate those votes and, and thank you. Yes, totally. And then did you say we're trying to be beavers? <laughs> uh, uh, I is it be- believers? Um, oh, be- beaver. It's a, yeah, it's beaver. I got it right. Yeah, beavers. Jordan Bieber, <laughs> believers. Um, Wait, but. Uh, nothing (laughs) (laughs) moving right along all right and so doing the specification thing i did find an interesting article the other day so um when outlaw and i were talking about the specification pattern apparently this is a deep thing here he mentioned that well you'd only do this with um you know particular collections or whatever and i was like yeah totally you do it with a local collection well i actually found an article where somebody had modified it to work with in hibernate so you basically specify you create your specification and then that could be used using expression trees in c sharp within hibernate and so your specification could actually query your data for you using that ORM. So that was a really interesting take on it. So you can, if you want to go a little step further, you could use specification to query external collections that you don't necessarily have in a list or an I enumerable or something. And so I thought that was interesting. We'll have a link in the show notes here. So check that out. Nate, the DBA is probably cringing at the thought of something else writing the (laughs) sequel for him. Right. But, uh, if anyone's going to do it, uh, this guy looks like a pretty good candidate. Uh, he's written a book on F-Sharp. He's an author on Pluralsight, uh, Microsoft MVP for F-Sharp. So, I mean, if anybody can do it, it's uh, like a functional person, right? Yeah, it's pretty cool stuff. Yeah, it looks really cool. So, in other news, uh, we talked about DreamHack. Last episode, we talked about that was coming up. So, that has come and gone. And if you weren't there... Man, you missed the excitement. It was so amazing to be there. Three days of nonstop gaming competitions. 
all kinds of different games that were going on. Anything from like uh, Pokemon and Magic to Halo and League of Legends and Rocket League. It was awesome. Yeah, it sounds great. Did you win anything? Uh, well, okay. So you want to say like, did I win anything in regards to like the games? Like, you know, but no, maybe not in that regards, but like there were other things like, uh, so, uh, my son was brought up for the, uh, my oldest was brought up for the, uh, in the halo during the halo finals, he was picked out of the audience to get up on stage for a halo trivia. And he won that by keeping his mouth shut. Oh, basically. very cool. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, so he, he was really excited because he got like a nice set of headphones that came with an amplifier and everything. Oh, nice. Excellent. Excellent. So. Oh, we got some sad news next. Oh, we do. Right. Dev Boot Camp is shutting down. Uh, they sponsored the show a while back. And so uh, that's a bummer. And uh, if you actually look at the comments of uh, Reddit or the news article, uh, the uh, Hacker News article I've linked here, uh, we can see uh, a lot of the interesting stories and comments that people were talking about. It seems like a lot of people were sad to see them go. I didn't actually see any negative comments. I kind of expected to see some, like, maybe some people who are angry at not getting jobs or, you know, feeling like, like they got ripped off or they lost something or maybe some people who had hired some graduates and had a bad experience. But actually, all the comments I saw uh, were positive, which is really surprising to me, you know, given Reddit and Hacker News. Yeah, so I agree. That haters going to hate. That's yeah. right. It is sad. You hate to see. And apparently they kind of started that whole industry, right? So, yeah, you know, best best luck and wishes to the people that are that are moving on from there. Yeah, what's weird is um, like my the university here, uh, University of Central Florida, is actually offering boot camps now. So it's kind of funny to see how how much that influence has spread. And so it's it's definitely a bummer to see them some see them go. Yep. Oh, uh, one of the things uh, ahead of their time. Yeah, exactly. You always want to be the second, right? <laughs> Unless you're Facebook. <laughs> no, I don't know MySpace. Oh, oh right. Well, you chase that back along. Was it like way. Friendster before MySpace though? Yeah, uh, it's it's all leapfrogging. You can't win. Yeah, uh, I did want to mention uh, Paul Spoon wrote an interesting article about um, what he called a mechanized approach to architecture. That was really interesting. And uh, I'm just going to throw that out that little teaser. Let you uh, click the link in the uh, show notes here. But it, it basically it, it focused on kind of um, deliverables for uh, architects, and you um, covered some really cool topics too. And I'm really looking forward to reading more on the blog. And it guys kind of ties in with some of the stuff that we're kind of talking about big picture tonight. So I wanted to throw that out there, but uh, we'll have a link to the show notes, but uh, you can also find it at spoon.codes. Very nice. All right. And with that, let's get into the meat of the show today, which is continuing on domain driven design. And for anybody that's wanting to follow along in the book, or if they want to pick up the book and, and, you know, come back here and revisit again, we are in chapter 10 and we're picking up with assertions this time, which I believe was page 255. And so we're going to try and finish off this chapter and then we'll move on to other sections in one of the upcoming episodes. So like how specific you are, like not only what chapter are we in, but this is the specific page number. We're going to be looking specifically at paragraphs one, three, and seven. <laughs> That's right. That's right. It's skipping the rest of it. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, that'll help you guys follow along a little bit. Um, so some of the key points here with assertions, and, and I know all of us here on this show are fans of this because it basically ties into testing. 
Um, but you need the ability to understand the meaning of a design without digging into its implementation. And that's key. We talked about it with clean code. We've talked about it several times. If you have to trace through the code, then something's wrong, right? And assertions help with that because um, especially Michael had in the previous episode where we talked about testing, he talked about the pattern that he does when he's creating his assertions for his test in and if you follow the naming conventions, it's really easy to see what's going on. So another part of this that helps is that intention-revealing interfaces. We talked about this last time, but basically if you name your methods in a way that lead the developer to understand what's going on, then you can use that. Um, and here's a key part, assertions or unit tests or whatever, they describe state. They don't describe the procedures, the process, anything. It is talking about state only. Okay, so when I when I think of the word assertion, I, I kind of think of um, one of two things. Like one is uh, if we're talking about unit testing, there's a little assert function that I can call that kind of says this is true, and then it kind of um, percolates up to my test runner. Now the other way I think of is um, I think it was an old C plus plus keyword or something, but um, is basically you can uh, call a function, give it something that should evaluate to true, and if it's not, it's going to throw an exception. So you can use it to kind of guard code. So you can say, like, assert something is not null or assert this equals that. And then you know if that condition is false, then the program is, is foobarred, right? And you got to stop you got to stop execution. So that's what I think of. Are we talking about the same thing here? Yeah, we are. As a matter of fact, one of the things that he points out in the book is if you are using a language like Java or C Sharp that doesn't have the assert keyword in it, like, you know, as part of the language, then that's where you use something like automated unit tests. So in your case, what you're talking about with like C++, that would be part of it. So you could ensure the, the pre-state and the post-state. And so, yes, that's exactly what we're talking about. No, I also it, use, um, I, I do something a lot, like this is a big pattern of mine, like I'll do like an if, but like if something is null, then I'll throw an exception, so it's just a little bit more explicit rather than like waiting to till it you know fails somewhere down in the next five lines. I get some sort of generic message, so I like to have something more specific. But I also like to do it um, in some cases where I like to validate my assumptions. Like an example I just ran across recently, I got um, some data in, and it had like an event type ID, an event ID, create create data. It was basically a data table, and I knew that every column was the same except for the event ID column. And so I knew that I could just get the top one, say create date, and that was going to be the same for every other row. So I didn't have to, you know, loop through and I could just kind of grab that once. And just because of the, the nature of the database I was using, that, that data was duplicated per row. But what I did is rather than just kind of like blindly assume that, uh, I put a little if check in there to make sure that that column only had one unique value. And if not, I would throw an exception because I didn't want to, you know, mess up the data in the system. And it sounds like so this that was is like a similar a precondition. Type thing. Yeah, that was like a precondition check that you were doing before you actually operated on the data, right? But, but I just did a crappy if check. I'm kind of wishing I had like a, a more formal method because then I could search the code base for this more formal method and actually see all the places that I'm doing this. Well, not only that, but it would make the intent more expressive, right? And then and there was this great quote that started off this this section where. Um, kind of along the lines of making it more expressive where he says assertions make side effects explicit and easier to deal with. Right. And so when we are talking about, you know, you brought up the example of unit tests and doing the assertions there, 
I, I hadn't really considered my assertions in that regard that they were like making the side effects explicit. But it makes sense, right? Because that's really all you're ever doing is you're checking the state of an object at the end of whatever procedure is called. So yeah, it, it does make a lot of sense. And when you name them properly, it helps out a lot. Um, so it, he also says that you state the post conditions from the operations and the invariance of the classes in the aggregate. So basically all he's saying is anytime that you're making any operations, cause your aggregates are what are in control of the variance for everything that it, that it encompasses. Right. So having these assertions there will help you state these things in a way that people can understand. Um, and to your point, Joe, the, the other thing was, you know, if the language doesn't support the assert keyword or, or an assertion, then, you know, this is how you do it with automated unit tests. So as you're writing your code, it's constantly building that and these things can pass. And I think it's worth saying, and we've said it before in our, in our episode on unit tests, a hundred percent coverage may not be as important as covering the needs that you want, right? So if you're going to write a unit test, make sure that you're covering all the bases for that unit test. Not necessarily that you're just trying to, to cover make sure every single method has coverage. You know what I'm saying? So like if it's important that you don't allow a negative number or it needs to be handled properly, or if it can only be a positive number, or if it can't be zero or whatever, you need to make sure all that stuff's covered, you know? Yeah, you know, this uh, reminds me a lot of coding by contract, which there used to be a lot of buzz around a couple of years ago. And you could actually, uh, like in C Sharp, particularly, like you could kind of, there were libraries that would let you uh, like drop annotations in that said only positive numbers or only negative, and it would fail things if it tried to even enter. And actually, just for the fun of it, I just Googled like C Sharp code by contract. It turns out Microsoft actually built a lot of this stuff into um, the uh, systems.diagnostics uh, library. Mm-hmm. So there's actually a whole contract namespace that has things like, contract that requires you can say like x not equal null and it will throw an exception if that's it's false and so it sounds like there's a lot of stuff kind of built in it's just not called assert hmm. well no no no. in the in the um system.diagnostics namespace there's also a debug.assert so you okay. can do these assertions in your code but because th- this was actually something i was going to bring up was that um you know in this in this chapter he doesn't really specify if this would be in your production code or in your debug version of your code. But it, when we talk about unit tests, then we kind of imply like, okay, well, that's not going out into production, mm-hmm. right? But, um, you know, in the debug.assert uh, method, when you, that that gets excluded from your release build, build. So if you were planning on something, you know, failing and aborting the process because some assertion wasn't met, uh, you know, that's not going to happen in, in the release because it, it doesn't get included. Hmm. Yeah, interesting. And they're actually saying right here, all methods called within a contract must be pure. So basically um, not updating any pre-existing state. So all this stuff is kind of tying in together. It's just kind of funny to see since I, I haven't heard this terminology in a long time. Well, kind of where I was going with that though, in terms of a deeper conversation was, is it, which one would be better then? Like, to, would it be better to use a debug.assert because then, you know, you're fine from a, you know, debug version of your code while you're testing and developing and things like that. You know, you can see things fail, but are you safer to have something like in an if check or something, you know, some other similar construct that's going to remain in your release version? So like, where do you draw the line of to how important that insert that assertion is that you want it in your production code? 
it yeah. depends. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, exactly. It like really if depends. you're, uh, say, a big bank, right, you don't want a, a single penny to, to be lost, right? But if, like, say you're a AAA game studio and, you know, something accidentally clips through a wall, like, you, you may be able to just let it go and it'll kind of fix itself, right? <laughs> I want to try your game. Yeah. <laughs> no, you don't. Uh, all right. So um, one of the things that he says here is you want to try and use models with similar concepts, which help infer the intended assertion. And I think all he's saying is, is when you're doing domain-driven design, you want to try and group things together that make sense together because then it's easier for the developer and even the other people that are talking about it to to make sense out of what they're seeing. Um if you're talking about unit tests, you have your preconditions that, that exist in the test setup. Um, I know Outlaw, you've talked about it. There's setup. Um, no, it's the AAA pattern. Yeah. Go uh, ahead. The arrange, the act, and the assert. So the arrange is your setup in that case. Mm-hmm. And then your act is doing the procedure and then your assertions at the end. So, yeah. And, I mean, these follow these patterns that we've talked about before. Um, your post conditions are your asserts. That's the last A in the AAA. And that's what's verifying everything came out the way it was, you know, expected to be. Um, and it may seem sort of weird to say this, but looking at the unit tests and seeing the inputs and seeing the outputs and seeing that those things actually successfully were asserted, they help you understand what the pre- procedure is doing without actually digging through the code, right? Like you don't necessarily want to go look at a hundred line algorithm to figure out what's going on. But if you can see that, Hey, I put this in and I got this out and you're guaranteed that that's going to happen every time that helps you as a developer know what's happening there. So yeah, nothing else. You get to kind of trim out things to think about. Like you have some sort of bug say happening in a refund condition in a, in a shopping cart site. And uh, at the top, you've got an assert that says like, um, you know, assert that order is completed before you refund it, right? You don't want a, a refund a pending order, right? So it's nice if you're kind of trying to track something down that you can see that assert and be like, okay, this, you know, this is something I know about the state of my application when I'm when I'm here. Yep, totally. This next statement that that I pulled out of the book, I, I, I'm going to back up in a second and talk about the reason why I think this one's important. So he says that combining intention-revealing interfaces, side-effect-free functions, which were both from last episode, and then assertions make encapsulation and abstraction safe. Now, the reason why this is important, and, and I didn't include it earlier because I wanted to talk about it here, is... When you talk about polymorphism, right? If you say some, if you just have a calculate method, that doesn't tell you anything, right? If you have a class that does multiplication, you have another class that does powers, you have another class that does division. This calculate thing, they might always take in two numbers, but you have no idea what's going on. And so, while you have this nice, you know, inheritance thing and and this set of methods that can be called consistently. There's no way for you to reason about it. And so what he was saying is, as you get these levels of abstraction and inheritance goes on, sure, the computer can reason about it, but it's really hard for a person's mind to wrap their head around all these different methods and, and follow the chain down, right, without literally tracing through the code. And so when you create these these interfaces, these functions, and these assertions, it helps a person understand the flow of what's going on as opposed to just what the raw inheritance would be. 
you ever see you ever trace something down into like the bowels of a like a JavaScript framework, and when you get down to the very bottommost call, the one actually through the error, it's like it doesn't even make sense. It's not even like programming language anymore. It's just like if this dot object apply call parent self. You're like what? <laughs> what? I might have written some of that, <laughs> yeah. uh, <laughs> but I mean it's you know core parts of the framework that are so generic because they do a lot of different things and use a lot of different ways. But by the time you get it, it just can't reason anything about it and so you just kind of have to keep going back and be like well i don't know why it's no let me let me see what the parent the uh parent call did yeah totally I don't understand all i did was write some json for this uh javascript <laughs> framework why didn't it work yeah i didn't right. write anything procedural it looks like it should have worked yeah i mean it, it's just really interesting to think about having unit tests or any type of assertions there to help you understand. We've talked about how commenting your code to tell what your code's going to do is kind of a bad idea. But but having a unit test there to sort of assist you in the understanding sort of makes sense because instead of it trying to describe what's going on, it's telling you if you give me these inputs, you can expect that this will be true at the end of it. And that makes a lot of sense because if that method ever changes, unlike a comment to where we said one of the problems with commenting a method is people never go back and update it, right? They go in and they, they gut the entire method, but they don't update that comment. You can't necessarily do that with a unit test, right? Like if somebody goes in and literally rips out everything that was in a method and then it doesn't fulfill that same test requirement, they don't really have an option unless they just turn off their unit test running, which is always possible, but you know what I'm saying? If only there was a way for me to tell the computer what I wanted and not what I wanted it to do. If there was only some style of programming that focused on declaring the things that I, I wanted. Uh, <laughs> I feel like you're leading into something here. Oh. so Well, kind of similar to this whole talk about the unit test and everything, um, I had, I don't know if I would call it an epiphany, but I had this thought that kind of occurred to me where it was like, um, this somewhat kind of related, related to like a lot of, I've had recently several times where people have been like, Oh, there was some code that I wrote and they're like, yeah, Hey, how do I use this thing? Which I guess was kind of bad. Cause it was like, Oh man, they got to ask me. That's a shame. But at the same time, I was just like, Oh, well, here's a simple, you know, uh, you know, seven line unit test or, you know, five line unit test. Go look at that. Right. And then it was like a documented example of how to use this thing or like all the various ways that you could use this thing. And then, but not only was it documentation, but it was also, you know, provided value and functionality because, you know, you could just use it to validate is this thing still work? Right. Right. Um, so I thought that was kind of a neat th- way to, th- to consider unit tests. Yeah. It's actual code that's proven out. Right. That's, that's beautiful. Go copy and paste this. It works. Watch. Run the unit test. You know, that's that's kind of nice. Um, so I did want to get into, in the book, and we don't talk a lot about the examples in the book because, you know, that wouldn't really be fair to tell you the entire book. Um, we're not trying to take money out of the author's pocket. But there was an example in there that I thought was really interesting is they were going through this paint mixing example. And... Imagine you have a paint class and you have this mix-in method to where you can bring in another paint. So you're mixing paint into this method. So one of the interesting things he called out is you want side effect-free side effect functions, right? 
But think about this. You have two cans of paint. One's got one's got some color in it, and you're going to pour it into this other can of paint. Well, let's say that you poured in a liter, right? You just increase the one that you're pouring into by a liter. What should happen to this other one? So what he was saying is, currently the way that they were doing it in the example, that one that was being mixed into the other one, they weren't modifying the volume of it. And a lot of times you don't really expect it to, right? If you call a mix-in thing, you take something and you pour it in there, are you going to modify that argument that was being used? So that paint that was getting mixed in, are you going to say, okay, decrease that thing by a liter? What are you guys' thoughts on that? Well, he actually had an opinion on this that they said in the book that like changing an argument is a risky side effect a side effect and a bad practice. And, yep. and I mean, he, those were two different statements that he made in different paragraphs of the same section. So like, you know, it, it resonated strongly with him that, that it was enough to like, I, I need to say this twice. So mm-hmm. along those lines then, what would you do? So if you did something like that, let's just hypothetically say that you were going to write some code like this. Oh. And, and you wanted that, that secondary, the other paint to be decremented by whatever volume was being poured into the other one, how would you typically go about doing that? Well, yeah, I, I mean, let, let, oh, go ahead, Jeff. Sorry, I, I just love this answer so much because I'm always preaching about this. I love breaking up the calculate and the modify into two different steps, and it's useful for so many different scenarios. You figure out what you need to do, and then you have something to actually take that, um, that design or that, um, that command and actually execute it. Okay, so tell me this, though. So you take this thing that's going to calculate it, right? So you're going to basically say you're going to increase this one by one liter, and you're going to decrease this one by one liter, right? That's what you're talking about. This is the the formula of what's going to happen. And so then the do, what are you going to do? Pass both those buckets of pain into this do method, or are you going to call it sequentially? Like, what's the, uh, like how are you going to maintain the state on this thing to make sure that it doesn't get out of whack? So you get a paint mixer class <laughs> and uh, okay. it takes a, it takes in, you know, the empty can and the full can, whatever. And it kind of squirts some from one to the other. And it's in charge of maintaining that relationship. But how okay. do you do it without actually modifying? You return the results, right? So you have some sort of uh, result object that says like, this should change to this, this should change to that. And not only is it, um, is it <laughs> well, more complicated to read when you're actually coding, which is annoying, but um, it's so much more flexible, I think, because you can do things like predict what's going to happen. And it's not such a big deal for paint, but sometimes it's a really complex interaction. You see, you want to see what would happen if I tried to do this. And you may not you know, choose to go ahead. You may use it as like a validation. Um, and and the, one of my other favorite points about it is it's so easy to test because you can say like, hey, what would happen if I did this? You get those results back and you can verify that. And you're, it's like you're verifying a blueprint and then... You know, you, sometimes that um, the actual execute step does things in the real world, like, you know, mixing paint. And so those things are hard to test, but, you know, you can test the parts that you can without dipping your toe into the uh, integration waters. Interesting. Yeah, yeah I like no, that approach. Nobody's got time for that. We'll just put an out variable or out <laughs> keyword on it yeah. on that uh, argument. <laughs> That's, That's the, the 17th like argument. That- the the example that always comes to mind that like I absolutely hate that's in the framework about this is like the tri parse. Yep. You know where like you you pass in you want to parse parse an int for example so it'd be int dot tri parse and you know, you pass in your string and then it's out and an int that you're passing in. I hate that. And, mm-hmm. and so you're right, Joe. Like doing what you were describing 
would be way more useful because then you could like chain things together, right? Because it's based off of whatever the result is. You can't chain uh, methods when you're using, you know, out as your as your way of returning back information. Yep. And one other thing I'd like to say with what Joe talked about there a second ago that I really like, and if you're following this domain-driven design and any of it's sinking in at this point, one of the things you could do is when you had this, this mix paint class or whatever, it could actually return you back an object that could be a value object that could be used to replace those other paint cans, right? So keep in mind as you're going through domain-driven design, as much as you possibly can, you want to try and turn things into value objects so that you're not constantly mutating the state of something, but you can literally just replace pieces of it. Because the more that you can do like that, the easier it is to to control your invariance. Um, and I think that was pretty much it. Were there any more? Did you guys have anything else on the assertion section? No, I think we pretty much wrapped that up. Cool. Sorry, I wasn't in the mic. Yeah, I'm a big fan of assertions, so I, I definitely like that section. I thought it was really good, and I really like the reasons behind it. So those are things that I care about a lot. There, there are definitely things in programming that I, I care more about, and assertions is higher on that list than a lot of other things. Very cool. All right, so the next section that we're going to jump into Just was called... wait till we get to the logging section. <laughs> I love logs. <laughs> he does love him some logs. Oh, conceptual contours. So this one's kind of interesting, and I'm hoping I can do a decent enough job on, on bringing this out. I think in a nutshell, before I get into it, really it's just trying to find how something feels like it's right. Like when you start finding things in your code and in the business logic and you start creating something that feels like it's coming together. That's what it seemed to be like with this conceptual contours. And, and hopefully we'll prove that out here in a second. I, I did like one of the quotes from this particular section, which is cookbook rules don't work for programming. So what they were getting into was a lot of times when people are developing they will try and say, okay, we're going to keep everything at this level of granularity, right? It, it, for whatever reason, that this is their application. They want everything to kind of be at this, this level of detail. And if that's too high, then it makes the code very hard to reason about, or you end up getting a ton of duplicate code, right? If you go too detailed, then you get lost in the weeds of it when you're actually trying to work in the code. So that's what they were talking about is it's not a one size fits all thing. And especially domain driven design, because you're trying to break down business domains as opposed to just, you know, various different layers and architecture for an application. So I thought that was really cool. And it, it makes a lot of sense to me because I've definitely seen things where people would be like, well, I want to go down to the level of detail that's like at a column or at an attribute. If you do that, then you lose that whole functionality piece. So I thought that was really interesting. Well, actually, um, um, the paint mixer example we talked about before, you know, if you just got one method, it's nice and simple, right? But you can't tell what's going on by that method. If you just have mixed paints, you don't know whether it's decrementing the, the source, you know? But if you've got, um, what it sounds like to me is like, if you've got like a, a nice API, yes, it may be more complicated to kind of put these things together and do it, but it's also much more um, easy to see like what's really going on and the things that you're really interested in, which also kind of ties into the, um, what do they call it? The interface, um, self-describing interfaces. What was the term? Yep. Oh. That's pretty much it. Um, 
Oh, crap. Intention Revealing Interfaces, I go. believe is what it was called. Yes. Yes. Something along that. And uh, this, yeah. this is something that clicked for me a little bit later in the book, which, which we'll talk about again here. But um, they showed some code, and I was like, oh, this first example is like a one-liner. It's like really expressive. It's really nice. And then, of course, by then, we broke it out. And it was like uh, it was like three different objects, and it was definitely more complicated. And I was like, ah, this kind of sucks. You know, but I, I get why we did it. But as I kind of read on and went on to say, like, yeah, but in this more complicated example, it, you know, it is more complicated, but you actually get to see what's happening. There's no question in your mind about how the sexual process breaks down. And this actually maps to how people think about this process. So when you read this, it's so much more clear what's going on than this simple one-liner. Yep. Awesome. But there is well, a fine line there, though, right? Like there's the, you, you, you shouldn't have to know all the intricacies of you know, the different object, like how everything's supposed to work together. Right. Mm-hmm. He did comment on that. And I don't remember if it was this section or the next one, but to that end, it needs to sort of follow the ubiquitous language that goes with it. So if, if people who are talking about the particular class in that domain or whatever business problem you're working on, if they typically talk about it in that fashion, then maybe it makes sense to break it down into that fashion. Whereas if you're trying to go too deep and break it down too far and you can't communicate that back up, then maybe you've gone too far. If you try to make it too general, but the ubiquitous language is a little bit more detailed, then maybe you need to keep flushing it out a little bit. Yeah, I'm really bad about it. If you ask me to design like a DLL, like a a library, then I'm going to return more often than not a library. It's like, oh, it's really easy. All you got to do is you create this service and you pass a config object. And the config object has an importer strategy and an exporter strategy. And you can just pass null. But uh, you can also pass in uh, this, you know, these various settings here. And you just got to configure all this stuff. And by the time you're done, you're just like, well, okay, well, I just nude up 11 objects. And I'm just trying to do the simple, like, you know, get by ID. I'm like, oh, well... Yeah, I love an object. This last one is most important because this is where you pass in your credit card number. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. And make sure you put that CVCC or CVVC number on there. Um, <laughs> yeah, but I think this was this section, though, where it was referring to you know the goal being to have simple interfaces that can combine logically uh, that, that to make sensible statements that follow along with the ubiquitous language. Yeah, okay, and, so that was here. Cool. Yeah, and then there was because there was n- later on where he's talking about like, uh, you know, if if all of your refactoring efforts tend to be localized, then that's an indication that you you've uh, your model is fit. But if you start uh, doing requirements or ad- adding in new, re- I'm, let me rephrase that. If you start adding in new requirements or you're doing refactors refactorings that s- are spread across m- multiple parts within your your model, then that's an indication that. Uh, you're missing something, and then it's the overall domain that needs to be that needs refinement. Right. Okay. So I'm doing it right. I'm just not doing a very good job of it. Is what you're saying? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we'll have to see your code. Put in a pull request. <laughs> <laughs> um. So that along the lines of what Mike just said a second ago, as new concepts are introduced into the model, so you start adding more and more to your domain, you might have to keep refactoring this stuff and as you keep refactoring it out and and you start shaping it this is where the whole term of conceptual contours comes into play it's what happens when you when you are refining that model and you start seeing these patterns and things start coming together a little bit better so that's pretty much what it is um so that name made sense to you then 
Because it, it didn't for me. It didn't initially. I mean, I literally had to read the entire section and let it sort of soak in. So, and so that's why I say it's more of almost. It's it's almost like a feeling, right? Because contours means the shape of it. And so as you're refining this thing down, I almost see it like like working on a sculpture or something, right? Like you just keep chipping away at it until you finally get this thing that is, hey, this is what I want it to look like. This this makes sense. Everything sort of fits in here. And so it's really looking for, I don't know if patterns, more more along the lines of concepts. When, when they start fitting together and you have a fairly, I don't want to say simple, but understandable model then that's when you get these conceptual contours uh, like one example uh, i can kind of think of is like you know let's say you're working on some sort of e-commerce website and um, there's some rule that if the order is over 90 days um, any refunds have to go on a gift card right so if you go to add this code or change this code in order to enable this condition and you find yourself working in like seven 17 different vials and they're all over the place there's some on the front end there's some on the back end there's some you know they're just all over the place scattered then that's kind of an example that you're doing something wrong and there's no real conceptual contour there. Like what you want to find there is you want to find like the order service and like the the refund classes and you want to be able to kind of drill into those and see how the payment methods work. And you know, there's this um, conceptual model you've got in your, in your mind of how this process works and it's whether or rather I guess just say how closely the code actually models your conceptual model based on the ubiquitous language. Yep. Agreed. It, it, it should sort of fit right and that's that's the key it shouldn't be spread out and scatterbrained you shouldn't have to redesign everything it should sort of all just sort of fit together yeah and it can so, be it can be too abstract too like you can go down to the order service and see a you know a refund method right and uh, it takes order id and that's not granular enough right cuz there's you know that's going to be a 10,000 line method it's going to have all sorts of if, um you know, private methods and all sorts of stuff, but just going in there is going to be kind of confusing. So ideally, you'd want to be able to pass some more stuff in there to kind of configure that refund because it's just a, a slightly bigger conceptual concept. Yep. And, and so one of the things he says here, going along these lines to maybe further solidify what we're trying to get at, is he said that when you find that conceptual unit of functionality, it'll lead to more flexible and understandable designs. So, so you as a developer, when you go in there and you look at it, you'll be like, oh, okay, this makes sense. It's all in this class. You're not going into the front end. You're not going into the back end. You're not going into 10 different libraries. Again, this is probably counter to how a lot of people do applications, right? When they start from the database first and then they just start coding around it, a lot of times that stuff is scattered all over the place in different models. We're talking about a, a particular domain, right? So like your, your refund thing. That's probably going to be in an order domain or something like that. And so it should sort of make sense and you should be able to look at it and see what's going on. I'm thinking of the word plumbing here. I kind of feel like if you're using the word plumbing a lot, then maybe your conceptual contour is a little bit too too granular, right? Because it sounds like you're kind of passing like one-off information around rather than um, more abstract objects. It's it's funny as as I've dug into this thing a bit more. One of the concepts that sticks in my head that I've seen so much, and for whatever reason, for years it never really bothered me, was this whole notion of DTOs getting passed around. And, you know, you just modify the things on them. You know, if somebody says do a refund, okay, modify the amount, modify this, modify this, and then send it back out, right? The problem with that is, is everybody has their hands in it, and that and that makes it very fragile, 
Whereas if it's all baked into an object, a domain object or whatever you want to call it, a smarter object, then you can control those things. You make those, those properties not settable by anybody. They're only settable by the behaviors on the object or something that can modify that object. And it really does help bring things down a little bit. Okay, how about this? If you're talking See, about you plumbing, then maybe things are actually pretty good because it sounds like the majority of your work is in routing, which means that maybe the other work is kind of trivial because you've got things set up in a good way and you're able to do the work that you need to once you get the information uh, available. Maybe. Depends on how people are talking about plumbing, right? Yeah. You are about to say something, Mike? Well, it sounds like you want more POCOs instead of DTOs then. <laughs> uh, that's a fine line uh, alright so moving on here uh, so decompose the elements into units um, basically your operations your interfaces your classes aggregates and this is where they say again using your intuition so what you've learned from the domain experts you need to sort of shape this thing and try and fit it together. I mean, we've all done it. Like, I know the three of us definitely have. You know, you get somebody and they want to add a new feature. And you're like, well, we know that the database tables need to look like this. We know that we're going to need calls to go do this. It's the same type thing, except now you're trying to fit it into a logical unit in your application code so that it can make sense in a, in a coherent way. So it's not about storage. It's about behavior and functionality and how they all tie together. And God help us, if they don't already have a good name for it, we'll spend three days just trying to come up with a good one. <laughs> or even worse, we won't. Right. <laughs> we'll just call it label and move on. That's right. the danger right there is you finally just give up. Oh, man. Helper uh, class manager. So one of the things here that I thought that, that is so key and I think will help a lot of people is this all only happens through constant refactoring. So basically, even, even as much domain knowledge as what we might all have, depending on what the subject is, we're not going to sit down in our first go and create the perfect domain model. It's just not going to happen because as new use cases come in, you're going to be like, oh, well, I need, to, I need to change this a little bit or I need to refactor that. And so it's this constant molding of this code before you can get to these conceptual contours or even to a place oh. to where it all fits. That, co that code definitely grows some mold. <laughs> yeah, because the reality is the reality is we're going to write that code today and we're going to want to refactor it, but it's going to be six months to a year before we actually get the opportunity to come back to it. So we're going to have plenty of time to think about all the things we did wrong the first time and how we might want to change it. Well, how about this, though? Maybe refactoring is so scary and gets put off so often because we can't do it reliably and quickly. You know, so maybe the reason that managers are so afraid of the R word is that every time a dev brings it up, it, they disappear for three days and they come back with a, you know, they come back with bugs three months later that, we're, you know, you're still finding. So, um, you so know, maybe if we worked on TDD. making... Yeah, exactly. And if you can't TD, why why can't you TDD? Um, well, I see. I would even say though that that doesn't fix the problem because TDD. If if you say that you're going to approach it from that that perspective, that implies that you're still going to get it right the first time, right? And, well, no. But if you have tests already, we've talked about this before. That it kind of like uh, 
gives you some courage to go and make changes to at least know, well, I haven't made it any worse. It does, except for, so let's get into the example that they showed here at the end of the of this particular section, which was this accounting example. And, and I don't remember all the exact details of it, but it had something to do with payments and like late fees or interest charges and, and various different things. But it here's basically the, the accrual schedule. There was like this light that got uh, turned on as they were going through the model was the accrual schedule determined how to calculate different fees for different purposes. So here was the interesting thing, though, is they created this model and, and it mostly worked for what they wanted. But then there was something else added and they were like, oh, man, well, this doesn't fit my model at all. So even with TDD, your existing test wouldn't work considering what they ended up doing is they ended up moving complete pieces of functionality to other classes and rearranging things. So you're basically going to trash a lot of those tests that you had originally. So I, I guess what I'm getting at here is TDD doesn't solve all the problems. You could still approach it in the TDD manner to where you're creating your test first to verify that everything's going to work and all the failing tests you probably end up throwing away because they're not even valid anymore because those methods got moved to new objects right but i well, think as part of their refactoring though you could just be renaming those too right or moving those around as appropriate possibly yeah possibly but i guess what i'm getting at here though is it's not like the TDD can give you more courage and it could definitely make it to where some of some of your testing and your your regressions get reduced. But I think the key is I think too many times developers and even managers and, and product managers, they try and do everything perfect the first time. And we've talked about this before. What's perfect today is very quickly not perfect tomorrow, right? They come with a new requirement. And your beautiful code now has to be hacked because it didn't it didn't work with this particular situation they want to do. So instead of worrying about that, constantly be working towards getting that thing into a good state and don't be afraid to change it along the way, which TDD would help with. But I guess that was what I was getting at more than anything else is that this comes from constant just knowing that you need to shape this thing over time, right? And, and that's really the key. By shape, you mean add a bit field, eighth argument, default to, <laughs> you know, some <laughs> something. Thanks for dropping some reality. <laughs> <laughs> reality check. <laughs> Writing tomorrow's legacy code today. Oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, unfortunately, though, what you're talking about is the reality of what typically happens but in a domain-driven design type of application or section of code, or that's mindset. not what you're going to worry about, right? Because you don't care about bit flags. You care about behaviors. You care about actions that are being taken on an object. And then how that gets translated later, yeah, sure, maybe it puts it on a DTO somewhere. But the actual domain itself, you're not going to have that problem. And that's one of the things that I really like about it is that you're really focused on what is the outcome of this thing. So... Anyways, uh, the last thing that I had here was having these conceptual contours come out and stabilize the model and make unit tests easier to create and understand. So, so this whole thing is if you can if you can start p 
peeling it apart and you can see how this stuff fits together, these conceptual contours, then it can actually help developers understand the code better and it will help them communicate better with the people that are giving the or using the ubiquitous language between. This episode is sponsored by Airbrake. Hey listeners, do you hate spending time checking logs, running ad hoc queries, or searching your emails for clues on production support issues? It's especially bad when the customer tells you about the problem. If so, then you should take a look at airbreak.io. It's a service for alerting and monitoring so you can proactively address issues and spend less time playing catch up. Airbrake supports .NET and all the major programming languages and platforms, which you can see on their GitHub page. There's a free trial, which thanks to your feedback, no longer requires a credit card number, so you can check it out risk-free at getairbrake.com cb. That's getairbrake, A-I-R-B-R-A-K-E dot com slash cb. All right, and we're back with standalone classes. Uh, you want to tell me a little bit about that, Alan? All right, so I think this is the last section I've got here. So basically, one of the, the key takeaway of this thing is as you add more dependencies to code, the more complex it becomes, the harder it is for a person to reason about because keeping track of all those dependencies and relationships, our, our human brains just aren't good at keeping up with that stuff. So the key here is what they want to do is you want to start reducing the number of dependencies in your code. And not not just for the sake of reducing the, the dependencies, rather it's to boil it down to what is necessary to that particular class or model or that section of objects. So um, one of the things that they said was implicit dependencies or references, they are actually harder for us to understand than explicit ones, right? Like ones that are called out because it's just something additional that you have to add on so that your brain can even cope with it. Well, let, uh, let's back up for a minute because when we talk, it's easy to think when we talk about dependencies that we're thinking about like uh, third-party libraries that you're, you're bringing in and things of that nature, things that are you know, uh, mostly other libraries, right? But in this particular kind of example, we're just talking about like, here's your class that you're currently looking at, you're currently reading, you're currently trying to understand whatever it is, right? And if that class has a has a any kind of dependency on some other class, right? That's what we're referring to as a dependency, at least for the topic of this this conversation. And so he's saying he has a statement in here where he's saying, like, if you have though. You know, if you bring in one additional dependency, now you have two classes that you have to think about and know and understand their relationship while you're trying to read the first class, right? If you have two dependencies in this first class, now you have three things that you're trying to keep up with, right? And you know, as as you bring in the third dependency, this th- this whole thing just starts to snowball out of control because now you have you know. Those object, those those three objects to think about and understand all of their dependencies, and it, it gets out of hand quick. Yep. And going back to the pain example in in this particular section, uh, if you follow the code through the entire chapter or even the book, like they they keep building on this stuff, and it, and he does a really good job of trying to point out some of the problems with these things. But the paint, the way that it started was there was literally three integers in there, right? Red, green. Uh, actually, it wasn't red, green, yellow. blue. 
yellow. Was it, yeah, it was magenta. It, it was the, the pigment color type stuff. So at any rate, there were three integers, right? And the problem is, is that was literally just, okay, that's numbers. Who's going to understand this stuff? And so what they ended up doing is they refactored that into a pigment class that had red, green, and, and yellow colors. And then that way, at least conceptually, it was easier for a person to understand. So they took the implicit numbers that were there that were red, green, and yellow. And then they changed that into an explicit one by calling it out in a pigment class. And so it's easier for our brains to cope with that because now it's something that we can make sense about this, not just a bunch of numbers. Um, so here's one of the things they say is every dependency in a class is suspect until it's proven as essential by that class. So like what Outlaw was talking about a second ago, you know, as you add more and more dependencies, it's really hard to, to reason about. I mean, we've talked about e-commerce things. And if you think about it from just an order, right, an order could have a dependency or a relationship to a customer. It also have a relationship to um, line items. Those line items are going to have associations to products. And then there's going to be associations to costs. And like it just goes on and on and on. And that's somewhat easy to reason about in your mind just because you can sort of understand a shopping flow. But as these things get really deep and you start tracing it through code, it is really difficult, really difficult to, to go down the entire line. Oh, yeah, especially um, I'm sure you've seen code that kind of gathers like different bits of information from different places as things kind of go down. So like you start here and it like grabs from, from the database. You go into the next call, it picks up a few config settings from, say, the environment. You go down a little further, get some more stuff from the database. And as you keep going along, it just kind of picks up more and more stuff. And like the variables just start exploding. Like your future self will thank you so much if you could just gather that stuff to, to a config object or you even have one method that like goes out and fetches everything it needs and then passes it to you know some sort of class that does the decision so you separate the gathering of your dependencies from the actual work man it's it's so much better and i don't do or going back to this this example that uh alan was calling about the, the pigment color though was that you know in that section in the, that portion of it though he he says that you know these implicit concepts count just as much as the explicit references and that we can generally ignore the dependencies on these primitive values such as integers or strings but we can't ignore what they represent the concept right, right. And, and and that's what's that's what's key there is that we can't ignore what this number represents and so that's why bringing it out into the pigment class uh, or the pigment color class that he did in, in this example made it so much more expressive and easier to understand. And you know, you can understand like what that number represents suddenly, right? It's not just a number. Exactly. Um, so here's what was really cool is often if you scrutinize these dependencies, a lot of times you can get rid of most of them, if not all of them. And when when you can, you eliminate all other concepts except for the ones that are crucial to that class. And this is something that we're all somewhat, uh, I would say, guilty of, right? Is you have an order item and you're like, okay, well, you need to be able to navigate to the customer or you need to be able to navigate to this. Do you really? That is the key question, especially in domain-driven design. Maybe not if you've been doing things differently in your own applications, but if you're talking about working in a specific domain, do you really need to navigate away from your class 
to another object? Does it really need that dependency? Or is having a reference to that dependency that can be acted on somewhere else good enough? So that is key right there is, do you need it? Is it crucial to the class? If it's not, you can probably get rid of it and greatly simplify your design. Yeah, it's and, nice to... Uh, it's not so fast objects too, but uh, you know we talked a little bit about the uh, interface uh, segregation principle and the idea of kind of passing in just the minimum amount of information. Like when you take in these big objects, like you take in a whole product when you need the product ID, or um, you take in a whole user when you need an email address, um, you're really increasing that kind of cognitive load on yourself because you're just bringing in all these factors. If you can just take like one simple object that kind of brings that stuff together, like uh, say an email address or a, you know a product email or something like that, that kind of um, you know, logically associates those things so you can deal with them as a unit. You can really make yourself, um, you can make your life easier. Yeah. I, I think a lot of times we try and make our code representative of, of how we know it's stored and how we know it's used. And the problem is it does make it way too complicated. It's just incredibly complex, right? Like mm -hmm. everything has things that you can do to it. That customer has things you can do to it that, you know, that order line item, the product, like there's so much stuff that can happen on every single thing that when you start trying to bake it all into your one little section, it, it's unmanageable, right? And that's how you start getting your spaghetti code and things that are impossible to follow and incredibly difficult to troubleshoot. Yep. And that's kind of the, like the opposite of DD, uh, um, domain driven design is kind of basing your code around your technology stack, which happens a lot of times with database. I think that's why they kind of warn you like, you know, focus on behaviors, focus on behaviors, focus on behaviors. It's because uh, you really don't want to violate that that language. You want to build that up. You want to create these domains and you want to treat these domains as if they're real behaviors. And you don't want to order, organize around what's easier, what's, um, you know, what can be done with the technology. Yep. Well, I couldn't help but think, and, and Alan, you may not have intended it it this way, but like as you were talking about your, you have the order object and being able to navigate to the customer and then kind of similar to what you were just saying there, I couldn't help but think of like, uh, examples where it's you know an entity framework driven application and so you're using what entity framework has provided as your model right yeah and then totally. that's where your capability of like oh i have a reference to this order object and because i have that and i'm using entity framework i can now drive to this other thing so you kind of the point there is that like what this what this book is getting at though is you know that entity framework should be hidden away in a layer you know that's not part of the model per se. The model might know about how to get to it, but that's you're not getting to that directly. Absolutely. Absolutely. So one of the key parts of this, as you remove these dependencies and, and you start chopping it away and you get down to what that class really is, this makes it to where it's something that's very easy to understand and it's self-contained, right? Like this is something that can be used because it doesn't have all these dependencies and potential side effects. It's And at that point, it'll also be more testable. So one of the things that I do want to point out here is the goal is not to eliminate all the dependencies, just to eliminate the ones that are not essential to the class itself. That's that's very key. If you can get rid of all of them, awesome. If not, and you've got some ones that, that have to be there, that's fine, but you want to reduce them as much as possible. Um, a what, I mean, kind of going building along that example, though, by by reducing those dependencies, so like rather than taking some kind of object in, uh, but instead you just 
have, you know, you get the, you know, Joe mentioned the example where all you wanted was an email address, right? So if you just let somebody set the email address inside of that, you increase the reusability of it as well. So now, for example, if uh, maybe you were relying on like whatever your HTTP context is to have like uh, some kind of user ID, for example, um, but really you didn't need the whole context, right? You just needed that ID. If you let that ID get set passed in and set, you know, whatever it is, rather than having this dependency now on HTTP context, then you increase the reusability of it to be outside of a web application, for example. Definitely. Which could become valuable later on. That actually brings up something else. So there was a comment, I might have been on episode 63, I can't remember now, I apologize. But it was, uh, somebody wrote in and they said something finally clicked for them during the episode. We were talking about DDD and, you know, various different layers. And this is really important, I think, if you don't understand it. When you start talking about different layers and abstractions and applications, inversion or uh, dependency injection becomes very key to being able to do some of these things in a reasonable way. So like what you were talking about, the HTTP context just kind of made it, you know, spring up in my mind is that's, that's an architectural or, or, you know, some sort of technical thing that you're having to deal with there. Dependency injection allows you to say, bring in this piece that I need and bring in this piece I need. So if you did want to reuse that somewhere else, you could bring in, you know, HTTP, HTTP context, or if, if you had another system that had something that was better, then you could bring that in. So just know that anytime you're dealing with multiple layers and interfaces, dependency injection can be a real lifesaver. And it's kind of the way that it makes some of these things. It's, it's sort of the glue that brings it all together. That was bad, uh, Brad Chigger, by the way. Thank you very much, Brad. Okay, And it cool. was in episode 63. Excellent, excellent. So thank you for the comment, by the way. It was excellent, and I don't remember if I replied to it or not. I definitely read it, but if I didn't reply, I was on my phone, and I hate typing on my phone, so I apologize. Um, So let's see. What else have I got? Oh, this was another thing. So any kind of intricate computations or algorithms, they should be tried to be factored out into value objects. And I know we've kind of beat this one to death, but as much as possible in domain-driven design, if it can be a value object, turn it into one. Because then you don't have to worry about maintaining invariance with, with mutable states, right? If you can just toss away the object and bring in a new one, then it's a whole lot easier and all the logic can just exist inside that value object. And now that entity doesn't have to control all of it. Um, and then there's only a couple more here. So low coupling reduces conceptual overload. So this is, again, this is just the mental thing here. If you can reduce the dependencies, it's easier to understand. And standalone classes, things that have no dependencies whatsoever, they are the definition of low coupling. There's nothing that links them to and from anything else. And so I lied. I I have one more section. Go ahead. I was just going to say standalone versus singleton. Any thoughts? <laughs> so when I first saw Wait, this what? section, I kind of like saw saw standalone, and I think about you know the word alone and standalone classes, and I immediately thought singleton. But then we're talking about minimizing dependencies, and I think of the downsides of singletons as being if there are any, are no. being that they tend to touch dependencies. But this, is, this has nothing to do with singletons. Right. Though. This is right. just uh, this this would just be like a simple class. Just think of like a simple Poco class, for example, that doesn't use any other classes. 
uh, I'm making like the most ba- extreme example that I can think of, right? It, it doesn't use any other classes. All of its behaviors are just, for example, on like primitives, right? Right. That would be an extreme example of a standalone. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, basically just no dependencies, right? Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I just thought that the name kind of sounded similar, but it, like in a lot of ways is really opposite of uh, Singleton. So I just thought it was kind of interesting. Yeah. Don't, don't, yep. don't go picking on my boy Singleton now. <laughs> I see what you're trying to do. Meet me outside. I see what you're trying to do. (laughs) Uh, All right. So the last one that I have, and this one's actually pretty simple, and and I thought was kind of interesting, was they called it closure of operations. I'm going to go back to what I said before, uh, the part about DDD that kind of drives me crazy is all the wordiness about (laughs) everything, the ubiquitous language, the closure of operations. Like, it's seriously, like, it's so much. Um. But basically what it boils down to is where it fits, and I think I even took this as a quote, where it fits, define an operation whose return type is the same as his arguments. So think about this. If you had that paint class, if you're passing in paint as one of the arguments, then the return type of the class itself should also be paint. So that's all we're saying is. And the reason why they like this is because if you follow this particular pattern, then you're not introducing any other concepts or dependencies there. If you're only working with paint, then you know that you're getting back paint, then you don't have anything else that's coming into play. And they do say this is typically used with a value object, which makes a lot of sense. I think we talked about in the past, one of the examples was if you had a money object, right? Money has to have a unit so that you know whether it's US dollars or euros or whatever, and then a value. And you can just basically replace the whole thing. You know, you don't change the value of $20. You say that, oh, now it's 50. You throw away the 20 and you have the 50 now. So that's how that's done. I mean, what they mean by the closure of the operations, though, was coming from uh, a math concept related to real numbers. That any uh, what was it? Any any operation on a real number? If you multiply one real number by another real number, you're going to get a real number. So it's yep. closed within that set of real numbers, right? So a way to think about this. He gave an example of XML in the book, but I think to me, a, an example that seems easier that everyone can relate to is strings. If you string plus string, you get a string, right? Yeah, and it better not change my original string. I mean, that, that definitely happens sometimes with some methods, but that's not something I like. I, there's definitely been a lot of problems that I've seen because you don't realize that you're mutating, or rather you think that you're mutating when you're actually returning something. Right. I do think I, uh, kind of having this closure of operations, right? Basically returning the same type, it does kind of discourage uh, mutating. Um, so, yeah, like I remember, I think about jQuery too. You used to, like, everyone used to, like, I can't remember the, the methods right now, but it, you would, you know, dot something and then dot something, dot something. So it kind of looked fluent and you would just kind of keep chaining these methods. And you could do that because it always returned the type that you passed in. The jQuery object type every single time. Yeah, I hate jQuery. <laughs> it's, it's somehow oh. it all worked. <laughs> it was magic. Um, so one of the things that was interesting here is they say that this is typically not used with an entity object. And if you remember right, the entity object are things that actually have to maintain invariance and that kind of thing. And they have identifiers. They can be retrieved. They have some sort of storage. That They have ways to be identified. Uh, and the reason is, is because they're not 
replaceable objects. They're usually things that have mutators on them. You're changing state of the object. You're not changing, you know, the entire object at once. Um, they also say constantly look for ways to reduce interdependence and increase cohesion. So by doing one, you're doing the other. And um, the other thing they say that also is helpful here is by using this closure of operation, it helps because you are not increasing mental complexity. And they also say do it with standard types. So your ints, your strings, your um, you know, your standard types because it's something your brain already has space for. And so it makes sense. Now he did go into a conclusion in or or an example in the book that was using something similar to like SQL. It's uh, what was it? Smart talk. I, I can't. I can't even remember what it was. But at any rate, it was using this collection thing that was standard to the language. So what he's getting at is these standard types. If it's something that's implicit to the language that people are just used to using, then that doesn't that doesn't add mental complexity because it's something you're used to using. So as long as you're working with one of the built-in types, you're probably in good shape. This episode is sponsored by. Linode. Linode has 10 data centers around the world with plans starting at just $5 per month for 1 gig of RAM and 20 gigs of SSD storage and can go all the way up to 200 gigs of RAM and 16 cores for your heavy computing needs. And all of this can be done in under a minute. Linode uses hourly billing with a monthly cap on plans and add-on services, ensuring you'll never get in over your head. You have full control of your VMs, so go ahead and add Docker, encrypted disks, VPNs, and more. To get a promotional credit of $20 towards your Linode hosting fees, go to www.codingblocks.net slash Linode, that's L-I-N-O-D-E, and enter CodingBlocks17 to get started today. It's like you're getting your first four months on us. All right, well, let's take a moment here. Uh, first of all, if you have already taken the time to leave us a review, uh, we greatly appreciate that you took that time. We, I can't describe, it puts such a smile on our face when we read those reviews. We really do appreciate it. Um, Alan might be a little obsessed. Uh, he might check them hourly. So just know that he's going to see it real quick after you write it. Um, but we, we really do appreciate. And if you haven't yet, uh, we would greatly appreciate it if you would head to www.codingblocks.net slash review, and there you can find uh, links to the major aggregators, uh, and you could say what you got to say about us, and we would be forever in your debt. Yes. Thank you very much. And I might check it every two hours, maybe. Okay. I was close. <laughs> what did I say? Every hour? I was, yeah, I was so, close. Some days more than others. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, by the time you average it out, it's probably an hour. It hour probably and a half. is. We'll find. You're probably we'll, pretty close. We'll, we'll call it. We'll we'll agree to just split the difference. We'll call it an hour and a half. There it is. <laughs> All right, and with that, we head into my favorite portion of the show. Survey says. Ding. All right. So, our most important ever question that we asked last episode is how many monitors do you use? And your choices are just one, two is the minimum, three, like a boss, or lastly, more than three, 
Because if it's worth doing, it's worth overdoing. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So, um, Joe, I'm going to let you go first since you weren't uh, able to play along with us last time, uh, last episode. So, one, two, three, or more. Oh, I know everybody listening to this podcast is a boss, um, but I also know <laughs> that we say, how many monitors do you use? Not how many do you have? So I'm going to go with just one. What? Wow. That's that's some pretty interesting logic. I like where you went with that. Uh, I just converted too. I, I'm running one in most cases. And, what? Uh, yeah, I don't, I, yeah, I don't use more than one screen right now. It's so nice to have the desk space back. I don't care anymore. Oh, no. I can alt tab like a boss. I, I can't talk to you anymore. Um, <laughs> it's a big one. Hey, hey what, what's the percentage there? Oh, um, t- 26%. 26% for one monitor. All right. Man, uh, I'm torn on this one. I So I've definitely worked at places where they only give you one. Mm-hmm. And, okay. and then you quit. Yeah, then you right. quit. And then you go like somewhere a boss. where they like people. Uh, I'm going to, I don't think this is the answer. I think one's probably the winner. I'm going to say two and I'm going to go with 30%. All right. And survey says, well, Alan wins. Woohoo. Two (laughs) was the, was the top answer. And you came in under the percentage for the double win. Wow. Which was how much? I, Two took the lead at 47. Wow. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. What was second? Uh, three. <laughs> really? Surprise. That, that one was surprising. I did not see that coming. I really thought that two was just going to run away with it, and then it would be like, you know, everything else would just, you know, one I thought would be the, the number, you know, the second best answer. You know what I think, though? I bet that the reason why two is so high is it's probably most people working off laptops with one other one. Mm-hmm. That would be my guess. But that guess. counts. But that yeah, counts. It does. It does. So, yeah, man. That's the that's reassuring. I, having two monitors is excellent, but I, I don't understand this one thing, Joe. I don't get it. Yeah, I just like the, de- the desk space. I mean, just like I'm surrounded by stuff right now. I got drinks and cables and... Get a bigger desk, dude. I don't. <laughs> I don't it. understand the problem here. <laughs> I do have an absurd amount of flat services to put stuff on. I, it's never enough. <laughs> Joe just hey, doesn't like himself very much. And you know what? He though? Likes the pain. You know that's what right. though, Mike? And I know you'll agree with this. And this is so true, and it seems so ridiculous. But if you'll invest in one of those Ergotron stands for your monitors. It's amazing how much desk space you actually get back just by having that thing raised up off the desk. I don't know. I like my plywood special monitor stand I built here. (laughs) It still looks terrible. I just take a picture just because it's so terrible. I understand where you... I I understand. I'm with you in spirit on that, Alan. But unfortunately, I can't... uh, Just because of the way my monitor is set Uh, up. Yeah. I I have the one monitor that's... um, on it. turned on in so it's just so that i have yeah, i can read like an entire web page all at one time and uh that one is actually flush to the desk so yeah i kind of yeah i want to be with you in spirit and yet that heavy monitor won't let me so. yeah all right then but i will say though for those that are rocking three 
So we've seen these, we've, and we've talked about curved monitors and how awesome that is and everything. And like, you know, there, there's some amazing ones out there. There's that um, new 49 inch curved one that we're waiting on Alan's review of. Um, <laughs> let's be honest. We know he's going to buy it. He's uh, I'm surprised he hasn't already, <laughs> but um, you know, the curved monitor trend, I just never got behind. I never really, I was like, oh, whatever. You know, I just, I just, the value of it just didn't sink in until for some reason, this thought had never crossed my mind until I was at DreamHack and uh, one of the company, companies there, Scepter, had out their, one of their new monitors and they had an arrangement of three. And if you've ever had, for those that have triple monitor setups, they'll know, you know, you just have like flat surface and then, oh, sharp angle from another flat surface. But if you have three beautifully curved monitors just wrapping around you, it's the it's so immersive and amazing. <laughs> now I'm sold. I'm convinced no I got to have it. <laughs> I can now have an Excel spreadsheet that just completely wraps around me. Yeah, I was going to say, like, I don't know what you're looking at, but I don't want the stuff on my screen surrounding me. <laughs> Imagine how amazing my variable names could be. They can be totally expressive now. Yeah, I like being able to look away from this stuff. Uh, Var, getting... This value should only be true if the customer is, is from Georgia. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm going to need dual 1080 Ti's to run these things because uh, I'm going to need three of those Samsungs, right? I'm thinking uh, like every yeah. every direction I look is Outlook. Like well, it sounds like a nightmare. Right? Oh, <laughs> oh, that's horrible. Now I know why you're back on one monitor. All right, uh, every company wide email is just one line, but it wraps all the way around you. Yeah, I'm just imagine like a VR nightmare, right? It's like everywhere you look is just work, work, work. You know, the one thing though, uh, it, so, so it was a beautiful setup, but uh, sadly though, is you know, this was a gaming convention and like all the games that they were demoing on it weren't really taking advantage at all yeah. of it. Like I could imagine that the, the best gaming experience where having that three monitor curved monitor setup would be the most amazing experience ever would be a racing simulation game yep. where you might be able to see, you know, somebody coming up to pass you on, on one side or the other. But uh, yeah, unfortunately, the games they were demoing with it, it they they weren't really showcasing. One of the games, you're like, you had a turret, and so <laughs> all you see on one monitor was, was just like the turret that's like right at your shoulder, and then the other monitor is the barrel of it. It's like, mm. wait, that's a that's an entire waste of a monitor right there. Oh, dude, this this actually made me remember something only because. This is super important because people will love this. Uh, we're all mostly nerds that, that do this kind of stuff. There is a show called Brain Games that wow. is on Netflix. And go watch it. It's amazing. Watch it with your significant other or your boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever. It is awesome. Because what what made me think about this is we were talking about the monitors and surrounding you, right? They go into an episode on peripheral vision and how bad humans' peripheral vision actually is. It is shocking. 
like how terrible your oh. peripheral is. So definitely go watch the show. Um, oh, yeah. I, I'll have to find a link to it for It's for actually the a National Geographic show yes. that's available on Netflix. So just yes. in case if you wanted to watch it live. Yeah, recorded DVR, whatever. It is it is done so well. It's fun. It's and you'll learn a lot, but yes, totally. You'll you'll be shocked at how messed up your brain is and how many things it just makes up for you. Oh well speaking of how messed up the brain is or at least how messed up my brain is. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's a great segue. So uh you know there were a lot of VR technologies that were being showcased at uh at the event this weekend. And one of them, uh, Intel had a booth there and <laughs> this was pretty, pretty impressive. They had one machine that was running a, a core I nine processor, but it was, uh, controlling three different monitors for you to be able to, you know, for viewing for the people to view. But then that one machine was also controlling two player VRs concurrently, right? And it was it was it was the most beautiful setup. If you actually saw it, it was all liquid cold, and you know different color liquids for like the CPU versus the video cards and everything. And you could just see the the transfer of the fluids. But it, it was amazing. But uh, one of the one of the VR simulations they had, I was like, all right, you know, I, I want to give this a shot, right? Because it's been, it's been a bit since I had tried some uh, the VR technologies, and. I don't know why, but my dumb brain didn't even like think about it. So like, as we're, you know, he, he hands me the headset to put on and I put the headset on and I'm, and, and my first thought was like, I started looking around like, well, when's he going to turn it on? And then I'm like, oh wait, dummy. No, this is it. I'm looking into this virtual reality world already. There it <laughs> is on. No, that's funny. That's how impressive it was. <laughs> wow. I, I totally want to buy one. It's going to be a little while. I, I just oh, it, can't. I, it was I can't sick. plug down the cash for it. Yeah. So uh, we ha- it's it's been a bit since the three of us have been around. So I think we're due for some Google feud. We do. We need some. So I've got a few for you. And first up is why does Visual Studio? Verify model models. Crash. <laughs> Crash. <laughs> okay, so Al, wow, Alan's going for the jugular. Uh, what was yours, Joe? Why is it verifying the models in my database <laughs> or whatever that, that stupid thing is? It's like takes forever. <laughs> uh, hey. So, so we're just going to say like, why does it take so long? Sure. Yes. Which would be the top answer? That's mm-hmm. ridiculous. Uh, keep freezing, which is really close to what you were getting at, Alan, uh, yep. is number two. Rounding out the top five, always rebuild. Uh, why does Visual Studio need admin rights? And lastly, <laughs> why does Visual Studio cost so much? Yeah. So, it kind of doesn't right, anymore. So, uh, yeah, if you get the, well, nowadays you can get the community edition, right? And yeah. you can do almost everything that you would want to do. Yep. You know, I had a thought. Uh, yesterday maybe it was or the day before. Like, do you remember when there was no Visual Studio? Every language had its own IDE. Yeah, within within the framework. Yes. If you wanted to do C there was a Visual Studio for you. If you wanted to do Basic, there was a Visual Studio for you. Um, I don't miss that. <laughs> 
Let's let's try another one, another Google feud here. Why is Python? Huh. So crazy about the white space? <laughs> no, nah, man. This has got something to do with the snake. Why is Python? Oh, oh, oh. man, I don't know. Hungry. <laughs> You're both you're both wrong. Your top five choices are why is Python used? <laughs> Which I thought is so unfair. That's uh, so unfair. Why is Python so slow? Also not fair. Why is Python called Python? Which is a legitimate concern. Right. Why is Python so popular? That's what I was just thinking now. And why is Python used for machine learning? All right, why is PHP? I feel like we should do this one. Oh, boy. Do we want to go there? Uh, uh, well, that's not... I had another one, but we could do we could do that one if you want to do PHP. All right, so I'm going to do this one. You tell me what you think, outlaw. Oh, wait. I wasn't supposed to type in PHP then? Oh, did you I already did. do it? All I right. thought... Well, I'm sorry. Well, I cheated. All right, we're skipping this one. What was your other one? <laughs> okay, let's go, to, let's go to my last one. I'm sorry. I, I didn't... I misunderstood. No, you'll never know. Um... Why is C++? Uh, so hard. <laughs> right? That's, that's what I was thinking. Why is C++? Yeah, so hard. I'm going with the same thing. All right. Well, you're both in number two. The first up, why is C++ used for games? Mm. Uh, for me, it was so hard. I searched it right after I said it, and it's like, oh, my gosh. Yeah, well, for me, that was number two. Three is faster than Java. Why is number four, why is C++ so fast? And lastly, why is C++ called C++? (laughs) Yep. Excellent stuff. I I like this game. (laughs) Uh, You know what game I like? Survey says... Well, (laughs) I mean, today's survey. (laughs) So I I got an explainer one for you guys today. <clears throat> there's, there's a little backstory involved. Imagine you get four identical job applications, call them quadruplets. And you've got these four applications and they've already been interviewed and they've all been scored exactly the same. They're identical in every way except one person graduated <laughs> from a six week dev boot camp, one got a bachelor's degree from a state university. One had three years of similar job experience and one was a frequent committer to prestigious open source projects. Everything else is equal. You even have the same names. Who do you hire? Are you going to tell us yours? Or are we uh, going to wait? I don't, I don't know. No, do let's you? not. Let's not. Don't, don't, don't. Don't taint the pool. No jury pool. No taint yeah. in the jury pool. All right. All right, got it. Yeah, that, that wouldn't be right. I can tell you which one's more expensive. <laughs> uh, yeah. Doesn't it feel like there ought to be like a census or some some you know organization like doing studies like this? Like I don't know. It seems important. It does seem uh, kind of important. I think there is one, and they call it the Stack Overflow <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yearly Questionnaire. <laughs> right. 
Well, don't uh, I kind of drive you nuts that like every other day, you know, like the, there's some article and you know, some science article telling you like whether coffee is good or bad for you, but there's never like articles talking about the tough questions. I guess that, that's why you need cutting blocks, right? That's right. We ask the tough questions. If there were quadruplets, <laughs> which one would you hire? <laughs> All right, so you yeah, you're doing the lead in. <coughs> All right. I made a note uh, cuz I was kind of coughing while you were reading that that you could mute cool. my uh, my mic. And there was one time uh during that too where were we talking about something that I brought up a website. Uh I think it was during the monitor thing. Uh let me say mute, like random website music play. If you can even oh, hear, I it. didn't hear that. I didn't hear it. Um, yeah, there was something one of you guys said, and I was like, "Oh, let me go to that website," and then I did, and it started to play music, and I'm like, "Bounce, oh, bounce, wow." Well. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, this is awkward. Uh. <laughs> this is like the World Series. Um. I didn't tell you I was in broadcasting. You guys don't remember what I'm talking about? I the, have no idea. It was like a Dodgers World Series that famously, like the one of the guys that was working the, at the broadcasting accidentally, like he, I guess, was watching porn in the in the booth, and he accidentally like went live with the porn. <laughs> so that no. was what was that's what was broadcast live on air. Well, oops. I want to say it was like a '97 World Series. Or something like that. Maybe it was like 87 World Series. I don't know. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> um, okay, so I see that uh, we're into the D1 section, and that's already been moved. There's not a whole lot to talk about, so yeah. It was fine. Um, it was with my stuff, too. It's, it was pretty short, so. Okay. But we're, we're definitely deep into this episode, so. Yeah. We're 135, according to my my clock. Nope. Yep. All right. All right. Now on to declarative design. Yeah. So um, first, a definition that was from the DDD community. Uh, Declarative design is a form of programming in which a precise description of properties actually controls the software and executable specification. And so that last part is going to be really key to uh, to a lot of this portion of the uh, of this chapter, because to be honest with you, this chapter threw me off guard. Because the first part of it, I, I kind of expected like, okay, we're talking about declarative design. I was thinking like declarative kind of programming, like you know, if you're in any kind of JavaScript framework, for example, where. Uh, you know, the framework is mostly declarative for like the views, the view portion of it, right? That's what I was thinking of at first. And I'm like, but I'm pretty sure that's not where he's going with it. So where is he going with it? And then there was this portion where <clears throat> he's talking about um, using domain specific languages and that domain specific languages could be declarative. And if you recall uh, back in the episode 40, while uh, we were doing the How to Be a Programmer series by Robert L. Reed. And in the How to Be an Advanced Programmer, episode 40, he mentioned 
using, I forget how he worded it. It was uh, embedded languages, I think is what he said. And mm-hmm. that you should you should create an embedded language in your program, right? Um, basically, um, so for example, if you had a a program that just took in some kind of simple query, rather than allow actually allowing your user to enter in a SQL statement, you would have your own syntax, right? That you would uh, use for that, and, and he called it an embedded language, right? So, as I was reading this portion, that's what I was initially thinking of: is that like that's where we're going? That's what he's referring to as declarative, right? Is, uh, you know coming up with our own embedded language and and so going you were you were talking about like how I was confused last time about the specification pattern because then it kind of it kind of steered into okay we're going to use the specification pattern to create a domain specific language uh you know this embedded specification language you know, do am I making sense so it was it so it kind of was talking about using uh, an embedded language, but using the specification pattern to do it. Okay. So it, but it was still kind of weird to me because like, it felt like a, a, a lot of it was definitely focused on specification pattern. So that kind of makes sense only from the perspective that by doing the specification pattern, I guess they were talking about doing ands and ors and and basically doing property checks like that. I mean, yeah, I mean, for most of a lot of the examples were like that. I mean, he did get into later on in the in this particular chapter, and this wasn't a very long chapter by any means. But you know, he was talking about you know if you had to get anything more complicated than um, you know simple like. There was this one quote that, like, this was probably my favorite quote of the entire book. And he was talking about, you know, using the, creating the specification patterns and where you might do things like creating an and and, and ors and not in your, in your interface. But he says, you know, if you're using, using a pattern doesn't mean building features you don't need. And I thought that's an, that's a great quote, right? Like, I, I just, I loved that quote. And specifically, as he meant it in this portion of the book, was that like, okay, if we're going to create this um, this this new language using the specification patterns, then we can, and, and all you're ever going to use are ands, then that's all you need to create. Like in your interface, just specify that, you know, the and has to be implemented. And then in every other method, it'll just create an and and you're done, right? You don't have to create ors and nots. And then if it gets more complicated, where... Um, I forget how he, how he worded the complicated one. Um, um, not this assumes, but, um, oh, I think maybe it was the assumes where it's like, if this is true and this is true, then, uh, if A, if A and B are true, then B is true because A and B are true. Um, uh, but when you get into like more complicated examples where you would have to use like A and B and not C, then he was like, you try to stay away from those kind of examples. But here's the problem that I had with this this section, though, just being frank, is that it kind of didn't sound like we're talking about declarative in any of this. None mm-hmm. of this really felt like the way, and maybe maybe this is the difference between, I mean, what was the copyright on this book? I think it was like sometime in like 2007 or something, if I remember right. So So maybe it's just the difference of, 
you know, had 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 we gone over had Coding Blocks done this in two thousand seven, we would have a different understanding or you know different meaning current meaning for what we would mean by declarative programming or declarative design than what my mindset was at when I read that today or, you know, 2017. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Because using the specification pattern just doesn't seem declarative. No, it seems, it looks really obtuse to me, but I mean, just looking at like the first sentence in this section, like it starts off sounding exactly like I expect, you know, we're talking about intention really uh, revealing interfaces, side effect free functions and assertions, and you're edging into declarative store, uh, territory. Many of the benefits of declarative design are obtained once you have combinable elements that communicate their meaning and have characterized or obvious effects or no effects at all. That to me is like, sounds okay. I'm on board. And then it goes on into specification land and <laughs> yeah, just not what I expect at all. Yeah. yeah I, I think you're you, like going back to the statement you made about like the JavaScript, right? A declarative thing is just a blob of JSON, right? There's no, there's no procedural or imperative code there. And specifications all look like procedural code to mm -hmm. a certain extent, right? And, and I think that's what you're getting at. I think the reason why they might have been saying declarative back at the time was because it's very simple. You have and or not predicates, right? And I think that might be, again, I think you hit on something with the time of when this was written versus now. Like, we truly have very declarative ways of doing things in some languages, and this is definitely not what it looks like. But I, I know, yeah, because in... Oh, sorry, Joe. <clears throat> okay, I was just saying that declarative languages are nothing new. You know, like, SQL's been around for a long time now, so it's just kind of interesting to see such a, a, a word I have such strong connotations of being used differently. Yeah. You, you know... He he says that uh, there was this one quote in here that I like where he's like, you know, it's such a language referring to the domain-specific language. And again, when I'm reading that, I'm thinking of Robert L. Reed's, you know, embedded language definition, which could be, you know, wrong on my part. But in such a language, programs can be extremely expressive and make the strongest connection with the ubiquitous language. So I was really kind of excited getting into this chapter and then I got totally lost on like, well, I don't understand why why we're suddenly spending so much time talking about specification pattern here. But um, but it kind of made me, you know, kind of chuckle in my head too because I was like, oh, it's extremely expressive. And then I was like, oh, wait a minute, JSON is extremely expressive. I guess. <laughs> I guess. Yeah, I'm a little just disappointed. Like, it kind of makes sense to me to have like a, a a section here on declarative design and using like well-defined components and rearranging them and having those um, those rules kind of play out in different ways. So you're kind of reorganizing the um, or composing your business rules into bigger things like declaratively. That that made sense to me. So I guess I just kind of rejected my own thoughts on what things should be in this section. Yeah, I it almost seems like if they if they're trying to go down the path of specifications for it instead of calling it declarative it would almost be more like expressive right it, because it's easy to see if you define your spec and you name it in a way that makes sense then it's easy to say hey user can do this dot and user can do that dot and you know you know what i'm saying like that's expressive but definitely not declarative so i think it's just semantically it, it's stated wrong 
Yeah. Well, well, one one of these days we should talk about declarative programming and the advantages of it and uh, the challenges of it. Yeah, totally. Yeah. All right. I well, mean, moving on to angles of attack. So we talked about a lot of different ways. We talked about um, a lot of different concepts. And um, I think the question you all are surely asking yourselves right now is how do we get there? And so, um, you know, realistically, I, I, I don't know any numbers, but I, I think that most projects we're all working on have all been in existence for at least six months, which is long enough to be a, a hot mess, right? Um, of code. That's a, a lot of time to just pile on the crap. So uh, I think it's safe to say that most of us are, are working in um, big code bases with a lot of stuff going on. And so the question then is how do we apply the things that we're talking about to that code? And how do we kind of carve off uh, little sections of it in order to? Well, I guess I just answered the question. How do we? How do we get there? And um, the uh, the this whole kind of section was all um, built on the idea of starting somewhere small and um, starting with something easy to pull out. So, any, uh, basically, the opposite of rewriting from scratch. And the first thing they recommend is uh, carving off subdomains that are easy. So, if you've got some uh, math functionality pull it out to a library. Um, if you've got some complex rules, pull them out and make them declarative. Now I'm kind of questioning what they meant by declarative. I guess I should have uh, <laughs> read the chapters in order because um, I definitely interpreted differently. And so that's kind of boggling in my mind still. Um, but uh, one um, the really strong advantage here that I really like that they mentioned here is that the new subdomains are clean. So when you're pulling out that math library or that accounting library, or I shouldn't say library, those subdomains, then, you know, theoretically, the new code is good, is clean, and the old code that you're pulling it out of is cleaner than it used to be, and it's easier to refactor, it's easier to test, it's just better, right? So, it's a pretty good spot. And it, it makes sense to me, then, that you would start with something that's easier to pull out, because as you pull things out, that original code is getting easier and easier to work on. We've talked about this a little bit with unit testing, you know, where do you start? And we talked about identifying easy uh, areas that were easy, but also identifying places that had the most problems. And this is kind of saying, you know, it's not specifically talking about testing, but it's saying just start out with the easy stuff and things will kind of snowball and get easier as you go along. And uh, there was another quote in here that I thought uh, was interesting. I wanted to get your guys' opinions on Um said it, it's more useful to make a big impact on one area than it is to spread your efforts thin. What do you think about that? That's, that's tough. I, I agree. Man, we've, we've actually been talking about similar things unrelated recently. Like, when you have so many different oops, when you have so many different pieces that are all spread out and everybody's doing things slightly differently, you start getting this divergence, right? And that almost creates more problems. So maybe it makes a lot of sense to clean up one section and get it done really well and then try and propagate that throughout. So I, I guess yes, I think I can get behind this, but I do feel like there is there is a problem when it starts going the other way too. But it, so I think maybe if you attack it one at a time, you get really good in that one area and then you're able to move it through. Yeah. I think that's a good, I think that's a good strategy. Well, I'm a little, I'm a little torn as to like exactly what, what is meant here. So, because 
if you were to take, for example, like, okay, I'm going to change the way um, my big impact is is going to be the way a logging is done, and I'm going to like refactor every. I'm going to introduce this new change to every place where the fact where logging was already done to be this new and improved version. So, so the bulk of the work was in you know the actual logging piece. But now I'm just changing a bunch of I'm sprinkling the you know the new method calls or the new signatures throughout right, um, you know so so it's it's still a big change but it is kind of sprinkled around mm-hmm. or yeah I don't know man I'm kind of I'm kind of torn as to exactly how that like what's an example of spreading your effort thin versus an impact in one big area I guess is kind of like in my mind where I was getting stuck. Yeah, well, I think that the logging is a fair example. And I kind of, the way I, I took it to mean is basically like, you know, yeah, it's uh, logging is one of the easier things to pull out. So that's good. But one downside is that the benefit has been diffused throughout your code. So um, the various uh, areas of your code have only improved 0.05% or 0.7%. And so it's not like a big noticeable improvement. You know, the other stuff hasn't really gotten that much cleaner. So it's good. It's just not necessarily as good as like rewriting um some you know some bigger subdomain or some more focused domain like say accounting or customer service or something Mm -hmm. so i mean you're just kind of spreading it out and so you know okay so the logging would be the spread the spread effort versus like an entire domain of like you know hey i'm going to fix everything in the customer uh service namespace that would be one big area that's my impact. interpretation okay. just because those benefits are kind of diffuse you know it doesn't really make it a huge difference to those classes you know they don't feel a whole lot cleaner you know like you're probably just replacing one line with one other line so it's not and that's tough to agree with him on that one then mm-hmm. because because then in that in that regard changing you know doing the big refactoring on just like a customer service namespace versus the effects of the new sprinkling the new logging love around through all your code. I mean, that that's having an impact on all kinds of little pieces that you're going to benefit from. Not and then once I, I, yeah, I got to assume that I'm misinterpreting what, what he means. Well, how much are you really benefiting by swapping out, you know, one like logging namespace for uh, a logging subdomain? Not even, I don't even know that logging deserves its own subdomain, but you know, it's a, it's an example. Well, maybe it's not a fair example. But, well, yeah. they do. Um, one the one thing that they mentioned is similar is like having a, a specific math library that does things like say calculate interest or um uh, that does just the kind of math operations that are common in your particular business and using that as a separate class. And so rather than having all these little times one hundreds makes percents or whatever, if you have like specific you know math rules to pull that out, but that's kind of an example where um you you pull out the math like that's probably going to be scattered throughout your code so it's kind of an example of spreading your efforts yeah i think i think if you're going from from that particular angle i think that that it does make sense to concentrate it in one area right because now everything can benefit from that one particular update yeah i I mean i mean yeah so now now i can now i understand what you're saying and i would i would go with the bigger example because as you were saying that i was thinking like okay so if you have, if you're working in a web app that makes a bunch of Ajax calls and, you know, you want to have consistent timeouts, uh, you know, some developers might be like, well, I don't know, like what, how many, 
if it's measured in milliseconds, would that be how many milliseconds is it going to take to get to five minutes? So I'm just going to be lazy and write the math formula out. And then, you know, it'll just happen at runtime versus <laughs> – because that's kind of like the math formula that you just exa- gave uh-huh. as the example from the book, right? And so that's why that one just popped into my head. Um, Although so yeah, I will say right. that's that, not lazy. In that case, that would have like little – that would have little impact on the overall, you know, end state of the application if you were to like, oh, I refactored this into like a new timeout uh, constant or whatever, right? Like who cares? Well, it kind of right. depends too. Like you might have a use case where you say, I want configurable timeouts. And in which case you get a lot of benefit from consolidating that stuff into a subdomain at that time, rather than kind of spreading that crap out all over the place. But if you're just pulling it out to just pull it out then you're, you're not necessarily getting a lot of benefit out of it. Then again, if you're going to be carving out subdomains, then maybe logging is one of the first ones to do because otherwise you're going to be kind of carving this stuff out and it's going to have this old logging stuff and so you're just kind of making more work for yourself. So, uh, you know, I think it's debatable. I think you've got to take everything with a grain of salt. But I just thought it was kind of interesting to see that they said to focus on one big area if you can. And rewrite the whole thing from scratch. Yeah, definitely. That that was in right. between the lines everywhere. And they never came out and said it. But I'm just kidding. They did not say that at all. Uh, so carve out subdomains that are easy. And the second uh, point they wanted to emphasize is um, another tip is to look for established formalisms, which is a fancy way of saying um, concepts that you're already familiar with. So like we mentioned accounting or math or um, you know customer service. Like these are kind of... Um, organizations that have been around since like people started talking right and uh farming so customer service is not a new concept accounting is not a new concept yeah you know accounting ledgers are not a uh, a new concept accounts receivable uh, all that sort of stuff payments refunds those are all things that have uh, a, a long 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 history and have terminology that's familiar to just about everybody and so you can pull that stuff out and not get kind of hung up on the weeds talking about how things should be organized because everyone's got a pretty good understanding of how that works already. So it's, it's a good thing to kind of go for first, but it's, it all comes back to kind of targeting the things that are easy to pull out first. Hmm. Hey, out of curiosity, there was like the accounting, was that just an example that you had or was that one that he had mentioned? Yep. It was the book. It was in the book and uh, it said it goes back centuries which I thought was kind of interesting, kind of blew my mind to think like, oh, oh yeah, I guess we we really have been, uh, you know, like counting things on cave walls or whatever since a long time. But one of the things that they also mentioned in this particular chapter, in chapter 10, was even though, and I think the accounting one was one, even though those things have been around for centuries and the concepts aren't brand new, the use for your particular domain may be different than another use, right? Like uh, when they went into the paint examples, that's actually what it was. When they went into that, if you're just mixing paint and you got a machine that's mixing paint, you might have a very simple use case. If you are a scientist who is trying to figure out which pigment colors will make which precise other colors, that's a different domain. You're going to have more, Uh, exacting type of definitions for things that are happening. So this is all very specific to which particular domain you're working in, right? Yeah. Well, this is the reason why I asked if the accounting was the 
was the example from the book or if that was just one that you thought of because in one of the previous sections or chapters of the book that, that we discussed previously, there was a, I remember reading where he was talking about like uh, in some, in some, you know, sometimes you're going to be lucky enough to work in a, in a situation or an environment where the domain is something well known and established and you don't need to be reinventing the will and accounting was the example that was you, that he used was that, you know, th- these concepts aren't changing, right? Mm-hmm. Like why, why would you try to reinvent this? Right. So go out and, and get a book on accounting, read about accounting, like, or, you know, it, you know, that's assuming that you don't have access to a domain expert that you could talk to about this and, and pick this up. But yeah, he, he was definitely suggesting not to, um, to reinvent it. Right. And we're not talking about reinventing, but just uh, as a good place to kind of start pulling those principles out of existing code. And so um, I think the contrast here is that you said um, you don't often get to create something completely new. Like let's say you're writing software for uh, asteroid mining satellites or, or something, um, uh, spaceships. Um, you know, even there, you're still talking about drilling. You're talking about mining. You're talking about um, resources. These are all things that you know humans have been dealing with for a long time. And so you know, you you can bet that a lot of those things are going to be still talked about and still in common. So those. Um, core concepts are things that you might want to kind of start with rather than starting with like laser calibration or something that maybe is a little bit more uh, just different or novel. And then uh, the rest of the chapter, um, they, it was a, a pretty um, pretty long example there. We kind of did some refactoring, but uh, I kind of broke out the, the major three steps that I saw. Um, and the first was separating the query from the modifier, which is we talked about earlier, something I'm definitely a big fan of, um, and emphasizing commands and side effect free functions. But I just kind of um, talked about breaking up the calculations from the actual thing that did the work. And so um, what was the concept called? The uh, contour something? Yes. Conceptual uh, contour. Yes, there you go. So even though it was more lines of code, it improved the contextual contour because you were able to actually see what was going on. It was uh, also unambiguous. And so it was in a way a lot nicer. And I kind of, that made sense to me to be able to see this couple lines there. And even though it was longer and, you know, so part of me kind of um, balked at breaking out that way, I did like that I, I did know more about what was going on without getting distracted by the details. Hey, just for clarity there, when in that, when you mentioned about the commands and splitting out the commands, though, I mean, I'm assuming that we're referring to like the command uh, and query responsibility uh, segregation. segregation. Yeah. Yeah. And when I'm talking right. about commands here, I'm, I'm like literally thinking about like the command pattern where you've got um, some sort of action encoded as data. And you can take that data and then execute it or replay it or in some cases undo it, you know, stuff like that. Um, second, uh, the part of the refactor was actually making implicit concepts explicit. They started out by um, doing everything in one function, right? Then they separated the query from the modifier. So now we've got uh, a function that calculates and a function that does. And then um, they were kind of um, talking back and forth between those two functions with a hash map or a hash table. And they're so like, you know what? We've got this kind of concept here that's kind of hiding in plain sight. Really, we're not dealing with, uh, I don't want to get too involved in the, the uh, example here, but um, we're really dealing with a collection of objects. And so let's make a class that represents that collection and take those um, individual objects and convert them to value objects. And so it just kind of um, 
made things so much more clear. That was the kind of the big eye-opening step to me is like just by kind of renaming things a little bit, now we're not dealing with hash maps. We're dealing with, you know, orders. Uh, except in this example, the actual the object was called a share pie, which I thought was hilarious. And also, to, like, still, like, kind of blows my mind. Like, I can't tell you what a share pie is, but. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like it's a class full of carbs. Yeah. Sounds delicious. Uh, <laughs> I don't want to share. <laughs> and then uh, step three was basically just sup up the code. So they talked about encapsulating some logic, um, minimizing some side effects, and uh, minimizing dependencies, which are all things we kind of talked about. So that was just kind of nice. But it's kind of cool to, to kind of walk through those steps. And, and particularly the step of one is something I'm always blabbing about, but, uh, separating the, uh, the data from the action. Um, and everything just kind of followed from there. So that was really nice. And one thing I, I thought was kind of interesting is, you know, we, we talked about the logging and even in the counting, but um, I, I kind of thought like, you know, like a real practical sense, like when you pull out that subdomain, where does that subdomain go? Is that a new library? Mm. Is that, that one's, a new namespace? A couple a, classes. Yeah, that's a tough one, right? Like, so in the in the specification example that I just did, I created a patterns GitHub project, and I put the specification pattern inside there because I feel like there's lots of patterns that can be reused, and so that kind of makes sense to create that. If you're doing something that is mathy, or or some sort of, God, I hate to call it, but like some sort of ER class, right? <laughs> like some sort of utility type thing. A lot of times it does make sense to have that in one spot. You know, bring it out into a separate project. Make it a NuGet package or, or an NPM or wh whatever your preferred package library it is. It, that sort of makes sense, right? Yeah, well, I guess I it's think it's going to matter. I think it's going to depend on like how generic is it. Like you're moving yes. it out, but how reusable is it for other things, mm -hmm. right? If it's not, then just making a new namespace within the same project that you're already in, whether it be a sub uh, namespace or a peer namespace or whatever, but, um, you know, it, 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 because there's some cohesion there, right? Yeah. But if you're able to, uh, extract something that's truly generic that can that has more reuse. That's when you would start to say like, okay, fine, I could you know break this out into a separate project, and then you know whether you go far enough to like uh, you know push that out to some kind of a packaging system, whether it be like a, a NuGet or an NPM or whatever. Um, you know that that's a more extreme because I I kind of feel like in the examples that we're talking about, you're not extracting something that's that generic i don't think but maybe but then going to the the last example that you gave with the web service example seems that seems the same level of extreme as like the npm or you know the nougat like that kind of package and at least it feels that way yeah and uh, i definitely like the idea of um, you know how the code is going to be used kind of dictating that so like if it's going to be shared or if it can be used in isolation then definitely pop it out otherwise don't don't muddy the waters, right? Yeah. Uh, one other thing I wanted to mention about the uh, the code example was still trying to not dive into too much, but 
in the the original most simple example, I was kind of thinking like, okay, what if I had to make a change? Like, what's a change here that that makes sense to make? And uh, in in the code, uh, the example, it was talking about applying a payment uh, to some sort of loan where there's multiple kind of loan shareholders. So like, let's say I'm opening in Taco Bell and Alan lends me 300,000 outlaw, uh, loans me $500,000 to, it's like really expensive. It's a nice Taco Bell. <laughs> the <laughs> nicest Taco Bell you've ever walked in. Super nice. Way. Super nice. Ish. Like they got pumps for the hot sauce. That nice. <laughs> the good kind. <laughs> and, I mean, this uh, isn't a future where every, restaurant is taco bell yeah and they all have pumps for hot sauce <laughs> so, uh, so we're talking about my version of heaven here uh, <laughs> <laughs> so i i owe you guys both monies but i owe different amounts and uh maybe you know maybe i i borrowed from outlaw first and you know and then alan i, I suckered in a little bit later so uh i've got a, a payment method here so i pay a hundred dollars right and it figures you know what um outlaw gets more of that payment because he led he lent me more money and Alan gets a little bit less. Um, and so if I wanted to change that code in the first example, where it was one line where it's basically like make payment and it took a dollar amount. Like if I were going to change that and say, well, you know what? Um, Alan's charging me higher interest. So I actually want to pay more towards uh, him, even though it's a, a lesser amount, I should have that option. Right? My first thought was like, well, I would change to take some sort of config object that would take the payment amount and also the breakdown. Like, okay, so, you know, that's that's fine. That's all right. And then I thought about in the new code that was kind of more broken out and um, it had a couple different classes. And when I saw the new code and thought about how I would make the change, it really changed how I thought about it. And I think it was because of that contextual contour. I was able to see exactly how things worked in like three lines. And so how I thought about the problem changed. And so I, rather than thinking, oh, I'm going to pass in a config object, and I'm going to if it somewhere in this big function. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to create a different repayment strategy. And I'm going to be able to take, you know, some sort of flag or, or take the strategy itself. that it says either uh, prorated this way or prorated that way. And just by having the problem broken down a little bit more so I could actually see, have some insight and kind of see the skeleton of what's really happening beneath the covers there. It changed how I wanted to make that code that I think would have made it better. So I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, I like that. I, I that's that's one of the things you get by looking at this book is the evolution of the code. And so I think one of the things I want to point out from this is while the book is kind of wordy, you know, like just being straight kinda. opinionated here. Kinda. So what? Kind of. Yeah, it, it's it, it can be extremely <laughs> wordy at times. If you can get past that, he's taken some real world examples that aren't easy problems, right? Like, and that's, that's what I really like about it is it's not like he just said, Hey, let me come up with these fabricated things that I can just cram into my domain driven design box and show how it can be perfectly done. He actually takes the opposite approach in some situations like, Hey, this is kind of a hard problem, right? And this is how you can solve it that that meets all of what you need with with as few of the bad things to come along for the ride and that's kind of going with what you're saying right as you see this you look at it, you're like oh okay i get it that makes sense right and, and it, it will at least open up your mind into a different way of thinking so the strategy pattern is opposed to passing in a config object right 
And maybe there's other ways that you can go about it. Like this whole specification pattern. I, I mentioned it previously. Like I'm actually using it in some of the software I'm writing now because I like the fact that it takes different entities in and I can make business decisions off of it in, in a way that makes sense. And it's easy for people to look at and say, oh, I get it. Right. Like I, I can, I can see how this, this works. So yeah, I agree. I, I like that. I like the fact that, that it's a different approach that makes sense because you can visualize it. You can see it and you're like, okay, that, that, yeah, I get it. Yeah. Especially since we've been reading the book for a couple of months now. <laughs> it has been a while. I mean, you know, the crazy part is it's not like we're alone in this because we've gotten a ton of feedback from people who are like, man, I'm, I'm really digging the clean code series. I'm really digging this domain driven design series. And it's because I think that's the part that a lot of people miss, right? Like, you start coding, you coding, you coding, and you're like, man, this just feels wrong, but I don't know how to, to make it feel better, you know, because you're just used to those same old patterns. Okay, here's the database, here's the code, here's the whatever. And so I think, I think that's why people are really liking this is because you can start thinking about the problems different, right? Instead of it just being a bag of properties that are hooked up to a database, you can think, hey, what are the behaviors we want to do here? And then how does that relate? So... Absolutely. But yes, it's, it's been a while. <laughs> yeah. So uh, we're going to have a, I think that's pretty much it for the show. Um, that's it for uh, the angles of attack. Uh, so now we're going to have a, a list of resources we like on the uh, the show notes. Don't think there's anything new here specific for this episode. We've got the Pearl's Eye video, the book, um, a couple other things, uh, some really nice websites for you to check out. Um, so Outlaw. I guess that takes us into Alan's favorite portion of the show. It's the tip of the week. Yeah, baby. And I think Joe's going first this time, right? Yeah, I haven't, I haven't been talking too much this episode. I'm getting a little hoarse. <laughs> <laughs> you parched. You need some water. Need some water. Um, uh, so my uh, my uh, tip of the week is is kind of crappy. <laughs> I apologize. But, uh, you know, so I'm down to one monitor now. I'm trying to get down to no monitors. And uh, part of... You're um, going to write your code on paper? <laughs> With my mind, uh, dictate Siri. Google Glass V2. That's what you've got, right? There we go. Yes. I, yeah. I cannot imagine how many bugs you're going to have if you're going to use Siri to dictate your code. <laughs> well, I'm not going to fix my own bugs. So, uh, well, there you go. Yeah, that's for the plebs. Uh, <laughs> but uh, so I, I try not to check my email too often, especially if you've got a lot of automated notifications from uh, like a ticketing system or something. I mean, you can just get buried in email after email. And uh, the problem with not checking email too often is sometimes you miss really important things. And it's like three hours later, you're like, oh, crap, I broke the build or, you know, whatever it is and didn't realize it. And so that can be a problem. And so um, actually, I uh, wanted to recommend something that a lot of people forget about, which is just the VIP settings on your phone. So you can make your boss a VIP so that when he sends an email or she sends an email, it actually pops up on your phone. And that way you can even keep Outlook closed and, uh, you know, set a little uh, tickler in your calendar to remind you to check it, you know, two, three times a day or whatever is important for you. But you can also have those VIP settings alerting when you ever get, um, you know, the uh, CEO emailing you or whatever. And so um, just kind of idea and you hear that little buzz buzz, you know, and you know, it's either a CTO or the, uh, you know, your significant other, and either way, you're in trouble. So, better answer. Another um, 
not alternative, but a, another way that you could possibly implement that too that I've done is that uh, we've talked about, um, I'm pretty sure it was Hanselman that had like, hey, you know, create this, these set of rules for Outlook. And it was like, uh, if, you, if you're the, in the two address, then it goes into your inbox. If you're in the CC, then it goes into your CC, uh, et cetera. And one of the things that I did for the, the two uh, to you know, was not only is the is the email to me, does it go into the inbox? But if it's in any part of my management chain, that stays in the in the inbox, and that way I see the things that are directly to me or directly from my management chain, which is kind of what you're describing. Uh huh. Yeah, I do something very similar. And with the the way uh, I check too is like I check the inbox constantly. Like I don't even know how many times a day I look at the inbox, but I don't look at the ticket notifications multiple times mm-hmm. a day. You know that'll be like once in the morning, once around lunch, once in the evening. Right. The CC folder, same kind of deal every couple of hours. But that inbox, I'm I'm pretty much on top of. But I can only do that because I filter all the other stuff out. I filter all the stuff in. Yeah. <laughs> Drink it from the fire hose. Yes, sir. All right. So I don't know why I went crazy on this one, but I've got three. So <laughs> um, the first is I'm using, for when I did the little specification project, I'm using Visual Studio for Mac. I figured, why not? So this is just kind of a reminder that if you've got a Mac, you can actually download Visual Studio, not Visual Studio code, but Visual Studio and write C-sharp applications and use the compiler and all that. So what I've written so far with the specification example thing, that is actually using Visual Studio for Mac and I'm doing a console application and when it executes it actually brings up a terminal window and spits out the output there so it's it's kind of cool it was kind of a way to force me to play with the new ide and see what's going on so that's one we've got a link to that here um number two this one's actually from andrew diamond so when we met up that night and we all went out to dinner i asked him i was like hey what other podcasts are you listening to because you know he he's kind of got a list of things that he likes to do and there's one that he introduced me to and I started listening to and it's called Masters of Scale. The site's here, it's mastersofscale.com. And I started listening to the interview with Mark Zuckerberg from Facebook and it's excellent stuff. Like it's really good. I highly recommend going and listening to that. It's the only episode I've listened to so far, but I mean, if the other content is that good, then I'm truly excited about it. So that was one. And then my third one is some of the comments that Joe and I have gotten when we've done videos for YouTube is, hey, could you increase the size of the font? You know, I can't see this. I'm trying to watch it on my phone. I can't see the text or whatever. And so I was messing around with it the other day. And and it's funny how you have to sort of, you know how you were talking about the code and you saw it in a different way. You have to force your mind to think about things differently. So I was so used to, hey, is there a plugin or how do I increase the font size in the IDE or how can I do this stuff quickly? Well, there's a problem with that. You increase the font size in the IDE and your your solution explorer is still tiny, your your debug output is still tiny. Drop the resolution of your computer. 
down to a smaller resolution and then work within that. So if you plan on doing any kind of video tutorials or code tutorials or anything like that, and you want to be able to share it on something that people will be able to see, maybe you're thinking about doing a Pluralsight course or some, some coding on YouTube or Twitch or any of those things, do that. Drop your resolution down to, I don't know, 1024 by 768 or maybe even smaller and record your screen at that. Then it comes across nice and big. People will be able to watch on their phones or computers, everything. So that's just a little tip for anybody that wants to also give back to the community and share with code. And hopefully that'll help you out. Yep. So... Uh, I got a I got a couple interesting ones for you that are kind of really simple. So just throw them out real quick. One is it never dawned on me um, that uh, I know Alan. You, I don't know about you, Joe, but I know Alan. You do this a lot too, as do I. Where on your Mac, uh, let's say you want to open up Terminal, you just Command Space, start typing in Terminal, Enter, boom, Terminal's open, right? whatever the program might be. And then you can take it a step further and you could, you know, also do the same thing for finding files. Uh, like uh, all the time, my number one guilty pleasure for that is uh, command space. And I'll type in like some math formula, whatever I'm, I want to know off the top of my head. And boom, there it is. You know, spotlight just tells me that. Right. And then one day I was like, you know, I do that all the time for, for decades now on the Mac. On, on my computer, but I have the same spotlight capability on my phone and I've never really used it for that. And so then I was like, well, let me start trying. So yeah, yeah you could do the same thing. And I'm like, why didn't, why did this never occur to me before? Right. And I was actually, th I actually had planned on doing this one as a, um, as a tip for the last episode. And then like right around that same time, there was this like Reddit thing going around where it was like, Oh, there's like a, you know, using the calculator, oh, your mind's this way. And then, you know, you, you use uh, the the spotlight functionality on your phone to, to do the calculation functionality. And all of a sudden, like, your mind's exploding. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so it was kind of discouraging at the same time. But I was like, oh, this is, I can't, I, I got to share this because it actually is kind of cool that, that I found myself using it even for, like, Oh hey, let me let me get to my Twitch app. And instead of like actually scrolling through all the different screens, I'm just like, you know what? I don't have time to like I don't care where the where the icon is. I'm just going like, oh, let me see Twitch. Boom, there's yep. Twitch. Right? Or let me you know whatever the math I can't I don't feel like doing in my head is. Let me find that. There it is. Right? Uh so stupid little reminder, you know, PSA that you you could do that. But then here's an interesting one too though that um that's really iPhone specific, but if you like to use any of the widgets on the whatever, the, I don't know what they call that main screen. Uh, it's not the Siri suggestion, but the one where you know you see it on your lock screen, and then there's a screen where it shows you like your today overview, and then you can see all, like all of your widgets listed there, right? Which every Android user is probably like, they gotta have a different name for it. That's what we call them. Um, <laughs> but but. There's this cool capability that it, that it never dawned on me, like because I'm always like, oh, which which apps are going to have a widget that I actually care about, and what is that widget going to look like, like because maybe I don't want to waste my time and it's such a hassle to like go and edit the screen to like see, and I know this especially is true for me on Android where it's like, oh, this looks like it might be a cool widget, then I add it, and I'm like, ah, no, that looks stupid, I don't want it, but on if you have a uh, what was the first iPhone that included Force Touch? 
or the, the 3D Touch. I think it was like the 6S, maybe. So on the 6S, if you, um, you want to see what that app looks like, it, one, you want to see, does that app even offer any kind of a widget? And B, what does that widget look like to know if this is something even of interest to you, you can just force touch the icon and you'll go ahead and get a preview of what the widget is going to look like hmm. as well as uh, all of its other capabilities. So I thought that was a pretty cool, uh, you know, l- little tidbit that might be worth, uh, you know, you might find worth, worth sharing. Um, and then lastly, the other one that I wanted to share was this article that, uh, that was on the, uh, MSDN blogs about seven lesser known hacks for debugging in Visual Studio. And I call this out because specifically, I don't know when they snuck this in to Visual Studio. I, 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 the part of me wants to just believe that it had to be in 2017 that it got, that it got brought in because I don't recall ever seeing it before. But if you ever, when you're debugging, um, do you ever, Alan Joe, do the attach to process and then you get the window and you're like, okay, let me attach to my IIS instance. Mm -hmm. And you know, now I'll, now I have a debugger attached. Right. Um, and then, you know, you're like, okay, this is great, but I can't edit the code. I got to like stop the debugging process and then change whatever I wanted to change. And now let me reattach it, right? And and before it was a hassle because you'd have to go back through that whole attached process. The window comes up. You got to find the exe process that you want to uh, attach the debugger to. Well, at some point along the way, Microsoft snuck in this reattach to process option. This is right there, just shortcut to just reattach to whatever the last thing is that you were attached to. And I'm like, until I saw this article. Uh, about the seven lesser known hacks, I didn't even really, I had, I just kept glossing over it because the keystrokes for going to the attached to process were so ingrained in my head. That it was just like, I, I, I wasn't doing it the easy way. Yeah. You don't look at the menu anymore, right? No. Yeah. Same here. So that's the show in a nutshell. All right, and tonight we talked about uh, supple design, finished up what we started uh, last episode, talking about assertions, conceptual contours, standalone classes, closure of operations, Ugh. declarative design, which, and, you know, also what that wasn't, and uh, angles of attack. <laughs> <laughs> We're not opinionated folk at all. <laughs> <laughs> all right, well, with that... Uh, you know, if you're listening to this because a friend pointed to the site or he's letting you, he or she's letting you use their device to listen to it, you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, more using your favorite podcast apps. And uh, be sure to head to www.codingblocks.net slash review to leave us a review. And while you're up there, check out all our show notes, our examples, discussions, and more, and send your feedback, questions, and rants. Wait. <laughs> To the Slack channel at codyblocks.slack.com. Oh, man. It's not so easy, is it? Uh, Joe, you take it away. All right. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at CodingBlocks or heading over to CodingBlocks.net where you can find our show soul links at the top of the page. So seal. <laughs> Whatever. Dang Whatever it. that difficult word is. Yes. That's a wrap. Yeah.